Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello and welcome back to another nostalgia-filled trip on the movie graveyard. That's right, we are once again resuming our long-lost series of favorite movies of, you know, 1980-whatever. This year, or, yeah, this year, but yeah, this time we're doing 1983. And Trev, I'm so glad to have you back in the graveyard for this. I want to coin this a very special episode of the movie graveyard. Feels great to be back. You know, it's a new year, but if there's one thing that stays stable, it's working in a graveyard, right? That never yeah. goes away. And uh, yeah, it's been too long since we've done uh, the last one of these, 82. And uh, I always I always enjoy this. It's nice to just sit down, look at the whole list of movies. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm sure you're going to agree this one is actually a pretty tough one for reasons yeah. I'll talk about later. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just definitely a special episode because I just love these kind of nostalgic lookbacks on, on more than one movie. When we get a chance, whenever time you and I get a chance to talk about multiple movies, I always find that just to be a little bit more exciting. Yeah, like I, I look back and I have to apologize to our listeners, you know, in case they, they, they like the, you know, because I like to do these little kind of series within a series type things. And uh, I was looking back and we were, I was quite erratic with our planning. Like 1980 and 1981, we did like maybe three or four months apart. And then I think we waited two more years to do 1982. And then it's been another like two or three years since we did that one. So. <laughs> we'll try to, we'll try to keep on a better pace. But, yeah, uh, at least one a year. I mean, geez. And, and to that regard, for fans of these, this series, I do have a, a promise to make everyone. I promise that starting with this 183, I, I will not be picking Superman 2. I, I know. I know. <laughs> like, that's wild how that happened, but I kind of understand how that happened. And, like, there's a film on here which I really, really, after reading about it, um, it actually didn't make my list, but it was like a strong contender. And I was like, I was waffling back and forth with the release date because it was like mm -hmm. limited release in 83, early, you know, more of a wider release in 84. And it's like, Sometimes you just read shit like that, and you're like, what year do I put this movie in? So I yeah, I have one I'll mention later, too, that's like more honorable mentions that, yeah. Uh, I, well, yeah, I'll, I'll talk why it like just misses the cut, but it's the same thing where I was like, hmm, I don't even know if I should put that in 83, even if I wanted it in my top five. So. Right, right. So, yeah, so anyway, just like all forms of entertainment, you came for the 1983 nostalgia, but we're going to make you wait for it. Ain't that right, Trev? That's right, because uh, we, you know, uh, Goat and I don't get to talk as much as we used to in general, uh, and we don't uh, do as many podcasts together as we used to, although I think we, we want to try and change that now. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and I'll take responsibility for that, because eh. I'm bad, because we have a revolving door of grave diggers, and I try mm -hmm. to cycle through everybody equally, but just sometimes shit happens, and, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I just know, like, one thing you and I used to love to do on our older, you know, respective shows was kind of year-end retrospectives yeah. and look backs and i thought it was worth it if we were going to be talking about 83 we could also just take a moment and say well what about this just this previous year 2000 you know 22 uh what did we think of that year because for me uh not to bury the lead or anything but i thought 2022 was an awesome movie year and so i thought since i don't have another show where i get to do this anymore because that's not what failure to franchise is about that's not what the x-men podcast is about i thought we could take a little time here and talk about what we enjoyed last year yeah for sure and um like, like, I'll just give you the majority of the spotlight on this, because I want to say I am not like a, uh, you know, living in a small town with one multiplex major chain theater. There's a lot of stuff that either doesn't get played at all or mm -hmm. it gets played for a week and like I miss it. And it's just like so like like literally I would say probably the some of the top four or five movies I wanted to see of 2022 I haven't seen. So like usually my rotation is usually not until March or April of each yeah. year that I get caught up on the previous years. So like, I'm just gonna like tell you how it is, Trevor. Like my list is mostly junk. 
Like, <laughs> and and although that is the precursor, we want to say of our favorite list of you know whether it be favorite of nineteen eighty three or favorite of twenty twenty two. I mean, we do reserve the right to say these are our favorites, not necessarily what we think is the highest quality of filmmaking, just For our sure. favorites. But just this morning, I watched a movie. I'll just say it. I, I watched Tar this morning, the Kate Blanchett okay. movie. Thought it was amazing, incredible movie, but it, it doesn't make my top ten or even fifteen because it wasn't like. You know, I I, it, I can't deny the artistry of it. Kate Blanchett was amazing. Right. I was really into it, but it's not the kind of movie that cracks my personal top ten. You know, so exactly. that's I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Is sometimes we have yeah. slightly different sensibilities about that. Although I will say this is a year where, you know, for the first time, you and I, um, I know we've talked Oscars a lot over the years. Yeah. And we've had different debates about whether how valuable the Oscars are. I've always enjoyed watching them, but at the same time, felt like they're kind of pointless. I will say this year, the Oscar race is like, I'm a little bit more interested in it than usual because I honestly do enjoy a lot of the big Oscar movies this year. And I, I will say one thing I really liked about 2022 is I just feel like in general, it was a year where the kind of the critical hits and like even like just the normie hits were almost like aligned this year. Right. I think this was just a year where like cinema kind of, I this is so, it seems so generic to say, and I know it's kind of just talking post pandemic too, but cinema really came back in a big way. I think anytime I see people now say like, oh, movies are dead and what happened to cinema? It's like, what are you talking about? There was such a variety of great stuff this year. And even like when you bypass, like I'll just say right now, this is this is the year, I don't know how you feel, but 2022 was the year where I kind of really turned on the MCU. Or they just really, like, they really lost my interest, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Like the, like the kind of bigger, there are some big blockbusters in my list, but they're not like the Disney ones, uh, or the, I guess they, one of them is, but they're not the MCU ones. And just like, I was so happy, just happy to see that as the biggest pop culture thing in the world got more boring and safe and predictable and cheap, there was a lot of, a lot of great alternatives. Very cheap. I mean, to the point where like, I know they won't because Disney can't turn off the money machine because film-wise they don't have much going on that's a success but like yeah like i just think marvel slit their own throat with bringing in too many tv shows too many films yeah um getting greedy in terms of wanting cheaper talent both in front of and behind the camera and like i just i mean like like it's very weird because it's like i'm very anti-mcu but then like over black friday i went ahead and got current with my collection and picked up like all the the recent ones you know everyone that's been released to home video so far i picked up so it's like like i'm i'm pretty much a hypocrite when it comes to the mcu trip because it's like i'm very disappointed by where it, it dipped down to but at the same time i still participate in it so it's like one of those things like should i really rail against this or not but it's like I can't help but be sad because like I remember geez like pretty much through the first five years of the MCU like genuinely liking everything like there would be a few mm -hmm. films that I'd be like oh like this was a disappointment but it's like now it's like I don't know like it, it just it, it never satisfies me and it's like that thing where like I'm almost questioning now like am I objectively like not looking like to be honest like when theaters were like really more shut down and shit and like I wasn't seeing anything like I saw all the MCU movies that came out in the theater this year in the theater, but I, whatever that was, 2020, 2021, like the Shang-Chi year and all that, I saw all those on Disney Plus and I genuinely liked them better. And I don't know if that was just because all my expectations were gone by the time they hit Disney Plus, but it's like. It could be. Know. Like I still haven't seen Black Panther 2, and it was yeah. just a matter of I missed it the first weekend and I kind of never got around to it. And then you do have that mentality now of just knowing you yeah. can just wait a month or two. 45 days or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. So. I was, I'm just like, I'll just be patient with that, you know, yeah. and I don't feel like I, I, I maybe I'll enjoy it more because I didn't pay to see it. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, I'll just run through my list real quick. Um, 
Number 10 is is a movie that I know, like, I don't know why, but people were so happy to see this film fail, and I really don't know why. But, again, this was a kind of a dry movie. I'm not, like, debating that whatsoever. But I'm just one of the few people, Trev, like, I'll still watch a movie for a cast. And number 10, I did really enjoy uh, Amsterdam. Um, number 9, I have The Batman. Um, number 8... Now this is this is where I'm gonna throw a curveball, but I'm just gonna do it. Like we did a lot of Christmas movies this year, both like theatrical, you know, past Christmas movies, and then we did a bunch of the TV ones. Like I'm gonna throw a film on here, um, Must Love Christmas. It was I think it aired on CBS, but uh, my boy Neil Blood, so he's really bringing it strong in the. He's been working I think both in the Hallmark, the Great American Family, and now CBS Christmas movies. I like this one. It was one about a an author. Uh, romance author that uh, I don't know there's no reason to recap the, the plot but like he was a journalist trying to get the story about how she writes her books and they they got waylaid in a small town and like they end up falling in love you, you know how the movies go Trev <laughs> so number seven grab your puke bags I really enjoyed the monsters the Rob Zombie version um, number six very early in the year but I know people shit on it saying well this this franchise died but I did like the new Scream film Number five, um, we we already did a full review on it, but Halloween ends. Number four, Barbarian. Uh, number three, Pearl, which was the prequel to X. Now, I waited to video to see these, so I actually purchased both pretty much at the same time. So I did the thing where I watched Pearl first. I haven't watched X yet, so maybe X would have been on here too, but I really enjoyed Pearl. And then here's where we get into the real shit. I don't care. Like These were my two favorite movies of the year. Number two, Morbius. And number one, Black Adam. So yeah, there's my ship rate. Like again, like I haven't seen Avatar. I haven't seen um, Babylon. I, like there's just a lot of movies from this year I haven't seen. So that's my list. All right. Uh, so I'll just do my top ten. But the, I will say, like this is the first year where on Letterbox I just kept a running ranking all throughout the year. Mm -hmm. um, every time I saw something new, I put it in there. And that's the thing is, like I'm scrolling through my list right now, and honestly, uh, at this point I have 60 movies uh, on here. Wow. And for 2022, I'd say you go down to about movie number, uh, let's see here. It's like around 42 or 43 where you start to get movies that I didn't like. So that means, you know, there was that was a good year, good. like 41 to 42 movies that I was like, I liked to loved, you know. Yeah. And a lot of like what would be my honorable mentions, you know, my 11 through 15s or into my 20s even are movies that probably would have made my top 10 other years, you know, like uh, something like, like for me, like Barbarian, which I love, didn't crack my top 10. Wow. Um, or Elvis, which I know you didn't like, but I, I yeah. really quite liked a lot. Uh, nope. Things like that. Um, even uh, Jackass Forever, which I saw the early in the year and thought, there's no way this won't be my top 10 because it was such an amazing theatrical experience, but it just ended up getting bumped down. So, yeah. Uh, uh, we have a couple overlap here, but not too many, not surprisingly. Perhaps we, you and I have always, that's usually been the case. Yeah. But uh, my number 10 is Pearl. Um, I did see both, and I, I do think Pearl is the better of the two films. And it especially, okay. it works really well, I think, once you have seen X, too. Um, mm. But just Mia Goth's performance alone probably yeah. made it deserve this spot, you know. That, uh, dude, that, that, mo that monologue towards oh, the end. Oh, it's so good, yeah. yeah. Again, the kind of thing where you watch it and you just get frustrated that award shows and critics just can't seem to crack into the genre, you know? Well, even the box office, man, I got, like, I mean, I know it was a very low-budget movie, but, like, I was really kind of disappointed when Pearl came out. I mean, not I hadn't seen X yet either, but I was just like, X kind of had a buzz, 
Mm-hmm. It, like at least like it didn't do gangbusters about it, but I felt like a lot of people talked about X, and then like when Pearl came out, it was just kind of like a, a week and a half in the theaters and then gone. Yeah, it's weird because like Pearl definitely had like the better critical buzz, but I think you're right. They you know they tried an experiment of the the surprise prequel in the same year, and I just yeah. don't think it paid off. But I'm glad I'm glad it paid off enough for a 24 to allow him to make the third one. Right, right. So that's uh, my number nine is Avatar: The Way of Water. Uh, I just feel such vindication about this. As oh, <laughs> someone who's too. always loved Avatar and defended it, to see it come out and you know get now it's about to hit the two billion mark and also just you know uh, you know do very well critically and yeah like everyone I know who saw it, even I know people who are doubters of the first film and have to admit this one is better. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, on a story level, it's again see it in the big screen if you can, but uh, just James Cameron, there's nobody better at making these kind of you know big blockbusters. So. I, I, I agree. Uh, I haven't seen the new Avatar, but like, you know me, like I've just been so tired of, you know, I mean, generally, like I know we all have a pre- opinions based on previews and shit, but this even before there was an Avatar 2 preview, like just the negativity surrounding its production is just I hated it. I yeah. hated what people were doing. So, yeah. Uh, my number eight is a movie I think you'll probably quite dig go when you do get to see it. And that's the menu. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's another great, one I'm dying to see. Yeah, great satirical dark comedy with like horror tinge. I'm gonna steal like uh, this is our buddy Bird who said this, but Ray Fiennes is playing like the best Vincent Price character that Vincent Price never got to play. It really has like that kind of old school like Vincent Price horror feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, number seven, The Batman. I'm with you on that. Um, this might be my favorite live action Batman movie. Wow. Uh, it's pretty tough, but uh, it just this one delivered so much stuff I'd always wanted to see as a fan of the comics. You know, the voiceover narration, the yeah. the, the, detect, the detective aspect. Uh, yeah, really, really dug it. Oh, the, all the villains kind of interacting with each other, but not you know in that old school Schumacher way. <laughs> no, so. not, not not meeting in an alleyway and saying we should team up and get rid of the bat. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my number six is the the Hollywood film RRR. Uh, I even though I had to watch the version on Netflix, which is like not the original language, mm-hmm. I was you know blown away by just the creativity of this movie and how much it does put a lot of American blockbusters to shame. Uh, but one American blockbuster it does not put to shame is my number five, Top Gun Maverick. Damn, I'm not even a fan of the first Top Gun, and I totally fell for this one. And it's just it's such a well constructed blockbuster that really reminds you of like what these movies used to be before the Marvel superhero formula just completely yeah. took over and started dominating. Uh, and also of course the incredible just cinematography and stunt work of putting the, the cameras and the actual jets with the actors and Tom Cruise being an absolute madman. <laughs> yeah. uh, number four, Banshees of Inishirin. Mm-hmm. Martin McDonough for me is four for four. I, I know not everyone loves uh, seven psychopaths or three billboards as much as in Bruges, but I've actually liked all three of those. And I dug this one too. Uh, just a good, like feel bad, dark comedy about two friends who suddenly one of them decides he doesn't want to be friends anymore. And the dark turns the story takes. Mm-hmm. Um, my number three is a very, very divisive one, apparently. Um, I know you either apparently love this or think it should be burned in a fire, but I loved Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Okay. Um, again, Chazelle's another director where he hasn't gone wrong for me yet. I, I, I know it's not cool to say you like La La Land anymore, but I still do. <laughs> and I really liked First Man as well, and I will always love Whiplash. And Babylon felt to me like, yeah, just like a, a step, like the next step for him. And I was, I'm actually kind of shocked at like the vitriol it's gotten, because I feel yeah. like if you are... If you are a movie lover, it just seems like I can see maybe like not liking it, but to act like it's like a gigantic waste of time or there's nothing there. It's it's easily Margot Robbie's best performance. It's just so ludicrous, so audacious. 
I love when filmmakers take big swings like this with studio money and the, you know, I don't want to see that go away. So that's why I was all about it. Yeah. I think that in Amsterdam both got the same treatment of people going like, okay, yeah, we see this bullshit coming a mile away and just everybody's slamming it before the movie like even came out. Like people, people basically putting their foot down is what it seemed like and saying, like, we don't want this type of pretentious movie anymore. And I'm kind of like, well, you kind of got to see a movie to know if it's pretentious or not, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if it's like pretentious but having fun with its pretension, then what's yeah. what's the problem? You right, know? right. Um, speaking of big swings that didn't perform, my number two is Robert Eggers' The Northman. Mm. Uh, just a badass, like Viking, you know, brutal, big, you know, well, big for him spectacle that uh, kind of bums me out that it came earlier in the year and it seems like by the end of the year it was kind of forgotten. Yeah. I didn't see it popping up on many year-end lists, but uh, I, I wish people would kind of revisit it. And I know it's the whole thing where they say it eventually did make its money back once it got to like VOD and everything. But uh, I wish it had been a bigger hit for him. Cause I'd like to get to see him play with this budget level a little bit more and not only have to do the witch in the lighthouse. Do you, do you Trev, uh, but by the way, that's like another, like three, four super lists or just movies I haven't seen yet. But do you think the Northman was hurt by once it came out and didn't like it, it didn't do like awful, awful business, but like, obviously it wasn't like a huge hit. Do you think part of that was, like the the kind of temperature in the room soured on it in terms of like once that happened it seemed like in interviews they start focusing on whatever compromise he had to make making a bigger budget film and like i never really saw him belly aching or crying about what he but just certain things like some of the casting and stuff and then like i feel like kind of the people that were on board with his earlier films were kind of like yeah this was like a sellout movie because he had to do all the studio shit and i'm like "Uh, i don't know dude like i mean granted I haven't seen the movie yet. I just got a copy of it, but it's like, I still didn't get the vibes that this was a sellout movie. <laughs> no, I, I know exactly what you mean. Like, I had those kind of discussions with Bird actually of talking about, you know, like you said, people really fixate on that one interview he did where he talked about the compromises he had to make, but you know what? That is the movie business. When you get a bigger budget, you sometimes do compromise and it's not always a bad thing, you know, like they yeah. were aiming for a different kind of movie here. And I mean, I, I thought it was, I thought it was great. Like, you know, it's not the same kind of movie as the witch and the lighthouse and you shouldn't go into it expecting it. But I think if you like those, you will definitely see Eggers in this movie. Right. And if you just like, you know, if you just like watching badass Viking action, action, um, it's going to be up your alley. Well, yeah, yeah, just, I mean, literally just the, uh, the, I had seen a couple movies kind of throughout the pandemic sneaking in the kind of empty showings, but I remember the first movie, my fiance, um, had seen since the pandemic started was we went to see the batman and um the like the when we got in there like uh because my theater plays so many trailers we usually shuffle in a couple minutes late and like we got there and like the first trailer that kind of come on once we sat down was was the trailer for the northmen and like literally my like my fiance was just like about a minute into it was just crying like she was so moved by the kind of like just seeing the just the trailer on the big screen kind of like the cinematic feel of it and i'm just mm-hmm. like you know what i mean like it's just like i don't know like like again i haven't seen the movie so i can't praise the movie i haven't seen but it's just like i don't know dude it's like it's like if this if this is what uh compromised by a studio robert eggers like vision is i'll take it yeah that's how i feel like if you're compared like i'll take a compromised eggers over again the the majority of like the bigger comic book stuff we're getting yeah And then my number one, it's not often that the movie you think at the beginning of the year will probably be your favorite movie of the year actually does deliver and end up sticking there the whole year. And that that happened for me. And that is everything, everywhere, all at once. I already loved the Daniel Swiss Army Man. That was my favorite movie of the year that came out. And this one was just even more up my alley. You know, in the same year that I I think I 
I didn't mean to turn this into a, such a screed against Marvel. But <laughs> no, it's the, okay. I, I, in, trust me, I think this, our audience is with us on yeah, that. <laughs> in the same year that they just showed their absolute lack of like imagination with their multiverse movie with Doctor Strange 2, um, to see the Daniels deliver what will probably go down in history as the most creative and most mind-blowing multiverse movie, but one that also has so much heart. And yeah. also just two great narratives to it, right? The return of Kihei Kwan, who I, you know, I'm a short round defender through and through. Oh, yeah. Love short round. Uh, just to see that narrative of him getting his big comeback after Hollywood ignoring him as an actor for so many years and him quitting the business. And then, of course, Michelle Yeoh to see her finally, yes. you know, get her like her due in Hollywood. I've liked some of her Hollywood stuff. I like, you know, I, I, I'm also a Mummy 3 defender, primarily because of her and Jet Li being in it. Oh, yeah. I love her in the Bond movie. But to see, to see her finally get something that felt like such a career culmination of here, we're going to honor your action abilities and your acting abilities in a way that, you know, typically we haven't been doing the same as Hong Kong used to do. Uh, yeah, just loved it. Loved it. Uh, I'm so happy it delivered on everything I was hoping it would. Which, which was awesome list, by the way, Trev, but it's to sidebar like uh, like way back in whatever, whenever uh, Indiana Jones and whatever it was, Crystal Skull came out and they're like, oh, LaBeouf, LaBeouf, ta- pass that torch, baby. We need that LaBeouf because everybody was LaBeouf fever in 2009. I'm like, I'm sorry, but there's only one heir to Indiana's throne <laughs> and, the, and that short round. And I, yeah. and I know the, the 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 excuse was like, well, he quit acting. He's he's in the financial sector now. He don't. But I mean, with with, with uh, Key Kwan's uh, return, not just to acting, Trev, but to action. Come on, yeah, come on. Yeah, and like you know, and like the reveal, which I didn't even know. So like the other day, it went viral, like a behind the scenes footage of him acting as like the fight and stunt coordinator on the first X Men movie. Mm. The fact that he, you know, he's he he is like really talented in martial arts and fight coordinating. And yeah, I think they hopefully this won't be like um, I know he's in Loki season two. I know he's in like American Born Chinese, both for uh, Disney. But hopefully he can like keep this comeback going. Yeah. And honestly, I kind of. I know some people poo-poo the idea and it's, you know, anytime you're talking about brand extension, at the same time I'm talking about how I kind of want these IPs, a lot of them to die off. Right. I, I'm not opposed to the idea of like a Disney plus short round show or something, no, right? To keep all. that, to keep that franchise going and to bring him back into it. I, by the way, I know the Indiana Jones movie comes out in about four months, but don't, don't, don't worry, Trev, they're going to reshoot the entire film two months before it comes out. So there's still time to slip into <laughs> the new I was wondering film. about that. Like I, I would be actually, I'm, I'd be kind of shocked if they didn't like call him in for like to at least shoot an additional yeah. scene, right? Like, yeah. how do you not kind of capitalize on that? <laughs> get him on the volume. <laughs> get, get him. <laughs> By the way, like again, not to you know, not to make this a bash fest, but uh, failure to franchise. Like, whenever I'm listening, you, like I do the little fist pump when when you guys. <laughs> slam the volume and the green screen oh, and yeah. how it's ruining modern movies because i agree uh, every like every time i've gone to the theater in the past two months i've gotten that trailer for ant-man 3 and oh, oh on, on the big screen like they showed that trailer before avatar and that was almost mean you yeah, know like yeah. that was mean to ant-man 3 to be like look at this and then look at avatar like to remind you of what when you're when when it's like someone a camera and wants to take his time and to develop the technology and make sure everything looks great. And then Ant-Man 3, which looks, you know, people keep saying it looks like Spy Kids, but it looks worse than Spy Kids. Because yeah, at least Robert Rodriguez has a sense of, you know, fun and, and doesn't care if it's, like, yeah. realistic. Which really sucks, too, because to be honest, like, the Ant-Man series, like, I know it's very minor for most people. But, it, it like, in terms of, like, franchises within a franchise, that whole Ant-Man thing, you know, I just, I love it. It's one of my favorites. Um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love Paul Rudd, obviously. I love yeah. the chemistry him and uh, Evangeline Lilly have. And obviously Michael Douglas. And I know Michelle Fiverr's been in the fold for a, for a little while, but like, she still hasn't had that much screen time to where, you know. Yeah. So, like, yeah, like, I was, like, look, you know, the whole time that movie was in production, I was looking forward to it. And then they just started hyping it up. Oh, this is going to be, a, you know, a, a Thanos Avengers level movie. And I'm like, well, I, I, guess, I guess if that's the case, then that means we just have to look at green screen the whole time. <laughs> yep. Yep. But yeah. So, yeah. So, to borrow a little bit of our formula for the other years that we do, was there, was there any uh, film that you wanted to say you didn't like? You put your foot down didn't like oh there were definitely films i didn't like look i disagreed with you on certain things i did i did not enjoy amsterdam or the monsters mm. um i mean the absolute worst movie i saw a year was the Firestarter remake oh yeah uh, that was it, bad it, it was just, that was it, that was the kind of movie where you watched it and you wondered why anyone involved was even bothering you know because it seemed like just nobody came with any kind of vision or or like interest in doing anything you know i uh, I, I cheaped out and didn't watched it on peacock the weekend it yeah. came out and it, it still was a waste of time yeah uh i was really disappointed by alex garland's men um oh yeah I, I still need to see that yeah i don't know i've liked everything he's done up until this point it was my worry with men when i saw the trailer was i was like is this just gonna be a movie where it's like you get it like right it's like oh, men are bad and that's yeah. that's kind of what it was and then yeah. yeah and then and then i will just throw out um it's fairly obvious now, but from the high of how much I love Thor Ragnarok, the disappointment of Thor: Love yeah. and Thunder was, was uh, pretty shocking. I, I didn't. I, I was that was one I was hyped for. I, I, I thought for sure it would deliver again, and uh, I don't know. It was, it was the, actually, actually that was the one Marvel film of uh, 2022 I didn't see in the theater. I waited for mm-hmm. Disney Plus, and uh, I gotta say it was a good move because um, I ended up buying the, the the Blu-ray or whatever of it, but. Um, that first hour, Trev, was hard for me to get through. That was probably, like, and I have a lot of criticism for a lot of different Marvel movies, but that first hour. The second half kind of started getting a little more surreal and fun, and I was able to, like, okay, okay. like, But that first hour, holy shit. And, and, and okay, I guess we need to talk about this. Take the temperature in the room. Taika Waititi, and I'm thinking particularly the, uh, the Russell Crowe cameo whole scene. Is his sense of humor, like, is it just, has it gone, like, over the top? Has he just run out of creative juice, or, like, what? Because, you know what I mean? Yeah, it was interesting to see the reaction to that movie, because oh, I'm sure you saw it, too. Like, film Twitter seemed to turn that into a dog pile in Taika Waititi and say that he's never been talented. And I had a really hard time getting behind that, because, I, you know, I've yeah. loved most of his stuff. Like, Hunt for the Wilder People is amazing. Obviously, What We Do in the Shadows is one of my favorite horror comedies. Uh, I guess I like Ragnarok a lot. I like Jojo Rabbit. I I do think seeing Love and Thunder, my assumption is that he never really wanted to do another Thor movie. And it was the kind of thing where Ragnarok was such a big hit. It was like a bad career move not to do another one. You know, they came to him and he's like, well, of course I got to do it. And I think him and Hemsworth just had so much fun riffing on that first one that they decided, let's just do that. Like, let's just, let's just get on set. Like that's the thing, like every serious element that was handed to him from Gore, the God Butcher, to the Jane Foster story, which is handled with so much more care and, and like, you know, pathos in the comics. They handed it to him and he just had no interest in that. He just, him and Hemsworth both wanted to fuck around and goof off on set. And then, you know, you heard the stories about how the first cut was like four hours and they had to like whittle it down. I think that's just like, he treated it like an Apatow movie. Yeah. I was going to say, Trev, like there was something weird. I think that's the movie I'm thinking of that, like, I remember, you know, looking it up when it came out and it was like running time, two hours. 
like exactly two hours mm-hmm. i'm like wait 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 there's no movie that's exactly two hours <laughs> like like whenever you see something that's like where the producers took over and i'm not saying the producers took over on uh, thor love and thunder but i'm just like it's usually a situation whenever you see a movie with like the insanely precise runtime of either 90 minutes or two hours that means that that almost always means that there was a longer cut and it was yeah. like oh yeah uh, especially with a marvel movie right now where now yeah. they're like they're just letting all of them run to like 240 or 230 yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, like, I kind of forgot about that. Like, I don't have vitriol for it, but I'll say my biggest disappointment of the year was actually Wakanda Forever. Um, Mm. Just from the standpoint of whenever, as soon as they announced, you know, unfortunately after Chadwick passed away, like, they announced they were doing that movie, I was like, I was so curious, like, what are they going to, just what are they going to do, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I just, like, and again, this is maybe more my own fault, but I just had all kinds of grand visions of different things not even anything specifically they could do but i just thought like i just thought it was like going to be somehow more like artistic and more ethereal Mm -hmm. and like they kind of just ended up in my opinion this is just my opinion but i like i feel like they just took the easiest laziest way out and it's like oh no yeah like what everybody thought was going to happen two years ago is just what happened Yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really say yeah. anything. Like, I've definitely seen a mixed reaction to it. My feeling, and it sounds like this, you know, I, I feel like you kind of lay here a little bit too. My feeling is even if I'm ultimately disappointed in it, it'll be hard to be too mad at that movie. Because, yeah. like, obviously I'm sympathetic to right. the fact that they had to change it all on the fly. And yeah. I, I wouldn't, I'm not envious of the position Ryan Cooper was no, put in no. with that movie, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, like, I won't really, like, slam it in terms of, because I know a lot of people don't like the way, uh, uh, Namor was handling shit, and I'm just like I'm kind of like I can't, I I kind of like I I like I think you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Not only making that movie, but making it as quick as they did. I mm-hmm. like I I think they were stuck in a rock in a hard place, but it's just like I just wish something a little more unorthodox and kind of like artistic and not just because yeah. when you watch it, it's just kind of like oh yeah, this is just another Marvel movie putting the stakes down, building the, the roadmap to the next phase of Marvel. You know I mean? so, mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Like, I, like I'll just let it out there. Uh, the one, the one thing, and I guess it, it wasn't a movie, so this is kind of a cheat, but I got to vent a little bit and I'm just curious where you were at on it, Trev. The one thing of the year that I genuinely kind of did hate. And, and again, it's just one of those weird things of like, it's not even that it's so bad, but it's like I feel like they just like shit it out just to get it out, dude. I was so like, like I like I, I don't know. Just there's there's really nothing about Star Wars Obi Wan that I liked at all. I, I I'm with you, man. I well I I think in my review I said something that if it was only the first and last episodes, it would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. But like everything in the middle. It yeah. really had the feel of what we know it was, right? Where it was written to be a movie, and then suddenly at some point they said, well, no, it's turned into a six-hour show. Yeah. And everything put in to create the filler. And it was really... I think you and I have talked about prequels before, and my general problem with prequels. Um, you know, it, it's obviously... I had a prequel in my top ten, so it's not like I'm against all of them. But when you do a prequel that doesn't change anything about what you know, you yes, know, like, yes. Obi-Wan didn't reveal anything that we couldn't put together ourselves. There was no, like... There's no real impetus for it to exist. Uh, so, yeah, it was um, – yeah, I didn't like it either. I mean, I, I, I didn't even watch Andor. Like, I'm kind of – and I know everyone loves Andor. I'm sure yeah. it's really good. But I just, like, Obi-Wan and even, like, the kind of, you know, uh, Book of Boba Fett I gave up halfway through. 
I just felt like so checked out on that stuff this year. Yeah, like, like I gotta say, like, I the 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 main thing that really pissed me off, like, yeah, I agree. Creatively, Obi Wan was just filler city, but the one mm-hmm. thing that like really kind of like the thing that actually angered me the most, Trev, was um, like, I never thought for the most part the Mandalorian, the Book of Boba Fett, like, I don't think those, you know, there was occasionally an episode here or there, but for the most part, I never thought those movie or those shows looked cheap. Oh um, yeah. But in Andor, I've only seen the first two episodes, but in Andor does not look cheap at all either. But Obi-Wan looked like the cheapest shit, even down, did, to, yeah. even down to the cameras they used, like some of those low level light scenes, like where they're in the caves and at nighttime, like there's even just like a fuzz and a grain and a noise to like what they captured in the camera. And it's like, uh, there's even like some shots of, um, uh, Moses Ingram that it's like, you know, not to be too whatever, but like. A person of her complexion like you have to light them differently you can't just yeah. throw them into a dark <laughs> you know a hole of darkness and just try to film them and i'm just like like there was even a, a and i know there's like i didn't even know this was going on but i talked to my boy phil Dees, and he was saying like there's been this thing of like disney plus just in general looking too dark on certain tvs and 4k tvs and like i watch obi-wan on a mixture of a 1080p tv and a 4k tv and i've never had a problem with uh any show at all like any of the shows on disney plus looking too dark for like my setup and equipment uh so i really think it was just how they shot it but the but the kind of like the the end kind of dramatic scene and i don't want to spoil too much but i think it's i think it's the last episode with with, uh uh, moses ingram giving a like literally crying uh, in in the desert at nighttime and i'm like i'm like i can kind of see what's going on but this is not how you light somebody who's giving a dramatic emotional scene i'm just like blah (laughs) Yeah, no, I I agree. It, def- it it looked the cheapest of any Star Wars thing we've done so far, and like and like the volume really did hurt that show in terms of, you know, there's some scenes in that that are meant to be kind of epic. You know, there's a scene where Moses Ingram brings like a uh, the the Empire to attack a, a rebel kind of stronghold. Yeah, yeah, oh, and you yeah. realize there like what the volume does to like action scenes is that they can't be epic in scope because it's the volume. You can only fit yeah. like 20 people in there. It makes everything feel small scale and lame, and I just uh, and then beyond that, like I said, the the cinematography and blocking itself was so flat. Um, I, I was yeah. going to say like Such a I, disappointment. I can't think of anything else, not just Star Wars really, but just really anything else where when the action scenes were going on, it kind of felt like people were just standing around. It was weird. Yeah. Yeah. And like even my fiance picked up on because I was like I just don't want to watch. It. Like I just didn't have the appetite to watch it when it came out, and. Um, and she watched like most. She watched like most of the episodes without me, if not all of them. And then eventually, like I got caught up to where she was, and we kind of finished it together. But I was like, yeah, like like even she said like like it looks like it was a COVID show because it was like it was just mm-hmm. weird. It was like just nothing was going on in terms of like what was going on in the other shows. I like I don't know like, but yeah like. It's such a bummer too, because like I'm so happy. I'm mean, I'm happy for you and McGregor and Hayden Christensen to be yeah. back, right? Right, like, right. I like, yeah. I like seeing him in those roles, but honestly, you know, it's it's really cool that Hayden Christensen now feels better about the whole experience and the, yeah. the fandom has like re-embraced him. And yes, I'm happy that he got to come back. But ultimately, really, what that should have been is just a solo Obi Wan adventure, entirely devoid of right. any Skywalker saga connections. You know, just Obi Wan versus a completely different villain, not wedging Leia in. Like, it just needed to be free of all that. Yeah, like, we needed something that was more, like, even if you were to do, like, a, like a you know, an actual, like, different seasons of a show, we kind of just needed an Adventures of Obi-Wan show where, like, maybe 
yeah, he's living that low-key life, and, like, there's just, like, a bad alien crime syndicate that rolls into town, and he has yeah. to, you know, like, something like that. And, and, and I didn't even hate, you know, I know there's a lot of hate for the child, uh, Leia, whatever. I didn't mind that, like, when they showed her on Alderaan in the beginning. I really didn't mind that. I just felt like that was, like, a separate show. <laughs> it was just, I don't know. I don't know, but so, like, yeah, like, and it's it just sucks, too, because it kind of has that spillover effect, and I think maybe you're feeling it, too, is, like, I kind of, like, when Andor came out, I was like, okay, I want to get on this to kind of wash the taste of Obi-Wan away, and, like, we watched the first, I mean, we watch shows very slowly in general in this household, um, we don't, like, binge watch or, like, really roll through shit even on a weekly basis, and it's like, I watched the first episode of Andor, and I'm like, okay, that was a slow start, but it was good, it was good, I want to see more, and then we watched the second episode, and it was, like, a little bit of filler, but it's still good, but I just haven't even want to go back to Andor, because I'm just, like, I'm so mad about Star Wars now, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm with you. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm, I've never been as down on the whole, like, Disney trying to franchise Star Wars approach as you are, just because I, I get it. Yeah, to me, Star yeah. Wars has always felt like a franchise. But I am down on them treating all of Star Wars as just filler for in between the other movies. Like, yeah. their, their, like, fear of moving forward at all is what bums me out. I don't yeah. care about any more stories that take place between empire and return or you know new hope and empire just like move the story forward let's get back to the sequel timeline even though i don't even like how the sequel trilogy turned out let's yeah. get back there and start doing some new things <laughs> well yeah like i think i brought this up to you one time but there was um i'm thinking it's yeah star wars battlefront 2 and it kind of like it, it had like this story campaign thing where it was like it jumped back to the events that, like that happened like immediately following Return of the Jedi and the collapse of the Empire. And then it was like flash forwarding back in time to like some shit, even with Kylo Ren. And I'm like, I'm totally with you. Like, I hate this, the, the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Like, it just, it's just like a running in place. I don't know. Like, just, I don't know. It's, it's just a whole whatever. But like, even I'm like, okay, like, I still want to see a show about how the First Order started. Like, at least enhance it by building some good shit around it that's not as rushed and not whatever. And, and, and their whole thing at the time was like, with the sequel trilogy, was like, it's time for you old fans to go away. Whatever you want, whatever you, like, first they're like, oh, we love you. We love your nostalgia. Then they're like, okay, now you're complaining too much. Go away. This is just the new generation. I'm like, okay, so make your new generation shit. And they won't do it. Now they're just like, no, no, we want to go back to the nostalgia. And I'm like, oh, make up your fucking mind already. So, yeah. So I think it's time now to finally uh, get down to the main event, don't you think, Trev? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, like, I think the way we used to do this, our top uh, 10 of whatever is, like, the number 6 through 10, we would run through just a little bit quicker. Yeah. Um, but uh, then spend more time on the top 5. But, uh, yeah, and we start at the bottom at 10. So, did you want to start, Trev? Um, sure. I, do you want me to just go, like, do 10 through 6 all in one batch since we do do those kind of quicker? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you feel like you can do it, yeah. Sure. Um, so let me just quickly throw out the one honorable mention I mentioned earlier that I'm mm. actually going to leave off, and because of where it fell, but where I it would have probably it would have been in my top ten, if not for me being kind of like mm, I don't know about this, and that's Jackie Chan's Project A. Mm. Um, you know I'm a huge Jackie Chan fan. I, uh, his that like run of like his like you know early '80s to like mid '80s, you know obviously going up to Police Story, when he finally got to like make his own movies and leave behind the kind of traditional martial arts movies and start doing his action comedy brand. Uh, Project A is one of the highlights of that little that little run right there. But I looked at it, and it came out in, like, it came out in Hong Kong in December of 1983. 
And I was like, well, if I'm being realistic, that probably didn't get any kind of American release until much later, because obviously Jackie Chan didn't really become a name here until much later. And I know I didn't get around to seeing Project A or even hearing about it till post Rumble in the Bronx. You know? So um, I just decided to leave that one off. But seeing that it was officially a 1983 film, I just wanted to give it a shout out. Yeah. All right, I'm going to cheat again. Uh, okay. but my number my number 10 is actually a three-way tie. Oh. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing that for a very particular reason. Because I felt like I didn't want to, I, I didn't feel like I love any of these enough to individualize them, but I did want to point out all in one go what a good year 1983 was for Stephen King adaptations. Oh, it was great, dude. So I just treat number 10 as a three-way tie of Christine, The Dead Zone, and Cujo. All three mm-hmm. which I, I like. They're not like my favorite movies from those filmmakers. They're not my favorite Stephen King movies, but those are three really solid Stephen King adaptations. And the fact they all came out in one year, I was like, well, that's pretty cool. So I wanted to give that a shout out. Uh, my number nine, this might be a weird one, but if you bear with me, it's actually Daffy Duck's Fantasy Island. Oh, wow, wow. Well, the thing is, I was looking through the list of movies that came out in 83, and I couldn't, you know, like you said, we look at this as our favorites, and I can't deny how much I watched this movie as a kid, because it was on cable all the time, but also how, honestly, thinking about the fact that it was in 83, and it probably came on cable in 84, 85, that's when I was watching it a lot, this movie and Daffy Duck's Quackbusters, those were really my Looney Tunes introductions. You know, I wasn't watching the individual Looney Tunes cartoons in any other way. It was the these these movies that they did, which were always, you know, these were just a bunch of Looney Tunes cartoons, and then they would create like a kind of a, an anthology bridge through it. And this one, of course, was Daffy Duck's Fantasy Island, right? So this is him. They were doing Fantasy Island, but with Daffy Duck in the Ricardo Montalban role. And yeah, I love Looney Tunes. I liked those. I, I wish I, I kind of wish those were like more readily available. Those yeah. that, I'm not sure if they are around, but I like that idea of just taking the cartoons and propping them up with like a quickly thrown together uh, parody storyline like that. Uh, number eight would be uh, Tony Scott's The Hunger. Mm. One of the sexiest vampire movies ever made. You know, Catherine Deneuve, uh, Susan Sarandon, David Bowie. David Bowie, my favorite musical artist, a better actor than I think he often gets talked about in that realm. Um, And this is, you know, early Tony Scott. And yeah, just kind of a, I don't know, it feels like a little forgotten today a little bit. And I wish it wasn't. It is. You know, there's other vampire movies that came along the 80s that I think overshadowed it, like popularity wise. But this one rules. And if you're a horror fan and haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Uh, next, I'm going to go to The Right Stuff, the the like over three hour, I believe, epic saga yeah, of the American epic. space program. Yeah. This was the movie I remember as a kid that made me realize movies could be really long. I remember that was always the fascinating thing about it as a kid being like, how long is this thing? You know, just feeling like, oh, my God, what a chore to watch it. But I do remember being really sucked into it as a kid and revisiting it a few years ago and still really enjoying it. Great performances from, you know, uh, Ed Harris, Dennis Quaid, Fred Ward. Um, but yeah, it, it earns its length by being a really, you know, good kind of encapsulation of that. It's kind and of then... funny you say that, Trevor, because I like when when I, I when I would see the right stuff on like HBO and how long it was, I always thought it was like a mini series that they like cut yeah. down or cut the commercials out of. <laughs> yeah, and I read today for the first time, I didn't realize it was a bomb, and like that's kind yeah. of surprising because it seems like a movie that obviously everyone, you know, would get all, especially during the Reagan era, right? Like the patriotism of it, you'd think would make it a hit. But I'm guessing people are just like, I don't want to go sit in a theater that long. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that would have been probably the early days of home video and and maybe that or maybe just movie channels like HBO is where it got its reputation. But I remember even by just the late 80s, it was still it was already considered like a classic film. Mm-hmm. 
And then, uh, and then my number six is we we've already kind of mentioned it. We mentioned the franchise to go back to the good old days. My number six is Return of the Jedi. Oh yeah. Uh, it's my it's my least favorite of the original trilogy. Um, it's a movie that I've kind of gone back and forth on how much I like it through the years. But in like especially with like the Disney stuff getting kind of more and more eh, whatever. Yeah. Um, my love for it's been like a little bit more solidified. And yeah, it's you know, you know like it doesn't make my top five here. Um, I don't love it as much as New Hope and Empire. But I do think it actually is a really effective. Uh, trilogy capper it, it, sometimes it gets a little too corny i do think it gets a little too childish i wish it didn't do that <laughs> but overall it ends the story effectively enough right you walk away from that very satisfied with the entire trilogy yeah so yeah so uh, i guess for my honorable mentions uh, definitely i gotta i gotta mention the hunger because that was on my list and I, I kept dropping it and again it was like it's such a good movie but then i was mm -hmm. like I was like, again, I had to go back to the favorites sort of thing and be like, you know, like, you know, like I've owned a copy of The Hunger, I think even since VHS, that's how long I've been into it. Um, I think I think it's one of those few movies I bought on like three formats, I think VHS, DVD and now Blu-ray. <laughs> but, but yeah, it just barely missed my list. And then um, again, um, just a movie I watched a billion times on cable, Trev, was Mr. Mom. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. Uh, also, again, it broke my heart to leave this off the list because it was always a favorite of mine. But like, I was just like, you know, over time, other movies kind of popped up the list. But The Outsiders, yeah. Um, and like, I know it's a short, but like, I'm pretty sure I saw it in a theater when I was a kid. But Mickey's Christmas Carol, like, that's still my favorite version oh, of Christmas yeah. Carol. And then again, I felt like a real bag of shit leaving this off the list. But uh, it's such a great dark horse cult movie. But The King of Comedy, mm -hmm. and then a another one was like again it was an amazing year for stephen king adaptations and it just i had to bump it back off the list but cujo was just a favorite movie as a kid watching it on cable over and over so yeah can i just quickly ask you because outsiders yeah. was one that kept kind of floating around on my list too and kept getting bumped down but i always felt bad about it but um where do you fall on rumblefish you know i, I I'm, I'm a bag of shit i saw it on tv as a kid i liked it um, I've had a Blu-ray copy for years, and I I never mm -hmm. watched the Blu-ray. Like, and and it's one that like every time I'm kind of like, oh, what should I watch? Like in my head, I always like I always say I'm going to do this because like, as we know from uh, Movie Hoarders, uh, our new podcast within a podcast, like I, I I buy so much shit that sometimes things get lost in the shuffle, and I just need to like make a a pile, a physical pile of like ten movies on my next ten to watch list. Cause I'm always caught in this thing of like, well, I just got 12 movies in this week. I need to watch at least two of these to make, you know, to justify my purchase. <laughs> and then like old shit that I've had on the shelf forever. I don't get to, but like, yeah, I've actually, I got a like a really nice foreign steelbook edition of it. And I just mm -hmm. never popped it in. I think I popped it in to know. like, look at it like, you know, but not to watch it. I don't know if you saw this, but just recently on Twitter, someone revealed, and I never do this until, you know, this tweet just, I think a few weeks ago, but before they filmed the uh, rumble fish, Coppola and the cast did an entire version like in front of like green screen as like an audition version. I did hear about it. that. Yeah. Yeah. And like some of it got put on Twitter and someone was like, man, I would love to see like a full cut of that. And it's like, yeah, that is the kind of thing where if Coppola would be down. It'd be fascinating to like just get to watch the full rehearsal version of Rumblefish where it's them in front of like obviously really bad green screen um, doing the movie. But yeah, but yeah, I, I just I want to I just want to draw attention to it because I love The Outsiders. Um, yeah. I even like the I even like the whole novel version. I think the pacing I, is like I, I, a little off on that one, but I still like it. I, you know, everybody gives that version shit. 
and then maybe it's just because it wasn't the version they grew up watching on TV, but I actually prefer that version. Do you? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can get that, especially if you're a big fan of the novel. Um, yeah. Just to have everything there. But yeah, I always feel like Rumblefish gets a little forgotten, and I think they do. Oh, yeah. They're really nice companion pieces. Well, Rumblefish, honestly, was even lost in the shuffle at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and I actually got a. It was very cheap. Um, I would recommend anybody to ch- check it down because you can get it for about 12 bucks. But there's like a Francis Ford copula blu-ray set that's like five movies and it's a really bizarre like mixed bag of like his older movies and his new movies but i just got it and it's got obviously it's got both cuts of like apocalypse now in it but it's got that movie tetro he did about 10 years ago which i I wanted to pick up because it's got vincent gallo in it but it's got one from the heart it's got like one other movie in there but like yeah copula man and i don't know if people know this trev but I mean, I think the guy's just sensing his own mortality. He's going back and remastering and sometimes even re-editing, like, all of his previous movies. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to get, like, the ultimate, like, home editions out there. Um, Even his last movie he did, uh, I think it was called, like, Twixt. Twixt, yeah. Yeah, he's got a new version coming out. Yeah, he's got a new version. So it's like, yeah, like, anybody who's into Francis Ford Coppola, like, this is the time, man. Like, pick up these releases. It's funny because when you said that you had this, like, you said you had a five- of Coppola movies that yeah. was really weird and I don't know why but in my head I was just like I hope he says it's like Godfather 1 through 3 <laughs> Dracula and Jack like that would be a great yeah. like five pack yeah it, you know again like I don't want to judge anybody an artist is an artist and there's different ebbs and flows and I've seen the movie Jack but I'm just like I just can't fucking believe Francis Ford Coppola because you would think Francis Ford Coppola making that movie would make it kind of overly saccharine and sweet and again, I haven't seen the movie in probably 15 plus years, but like, it just seems like your average studio bullshit. Yeah, comedy. no, that is that is the weird outlier in his career. I still sometimes to this day see people say it's weird that he did Dracula. Yeah. And like, I don't agree with that at all. No, because no, Dracula, no. he fills with all the old, like traditional movie special effects techniques. Right. And it's like, you get why a film nerd like him would want to do that movie yeah. and make it so operatic and, and like, you know, bombastic. But Jack, I agree with you 100%. It's yeah. just like, I'm surprised that wasn't like directed by like Howie Deutsch or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I love Howie Deutsch, but I know exactly what you mean. Like, the only yeah. thing I think you can give to Jack is it had some early era uh, kind of MILF humor vibes with, I think, Fran Drescher in that movie. <laughs> That's about all I can give it. So, yeah, so running through the bottom half of my list, um, uh, number 10. Again, I'm, I would not sell you that this is a quality film. This is just, this is actually something I've only recently uh, discovered in the last 10 years, and it was one of the first movies we covered on this podcast. But I love the Charles Bronson thriller, 10 to Midnight, Trev. Yep, yep. And it's just, uh, just real quick, uh, it's it's about Charles Bronson, obviously, is a no-nonsense cop um, that is tracking a serial killer who commits all his crimes naked as to not leave any evidence, which is funny because in the modern era of DNA, being naked would actually be more of a hindrance than anything else but but yeah it's great like the opening scene is uh the killer goes to a movie uh he acts obnoxious so people like recognize and remember him being at the movie as soon as the movie starts he goes in the bathroom he climbs out the window he strips down naked kills some people at a nearby lover's lane and then sneaks back into the movie theater so people can see him again leaving when the movie's over brilliant brilliant Number nine, I got some real hillbilly shit here. This is some real hillbilly bullshit to to pull here, Trev. But I am a fan of this this remake. I love it, but I've never seen the original film, and I hate when people do that. But I'm doing it right here, and that's actually the Richard Gere starring version of Breathless. 
Okay. I just, even since I was a kid, like this movie always caught my fancy, and it's weird because it's kind of like a like a slow moving kind of thing. But I just kind of love this. Uh, like like I don't know why. To me, this movie is to me like what I think what American Gigolo is to a lot of people. I like this Richard Gere character better, but uh, I don't know. It's just got like some weird like kind of shit thrown in there in terms of like you know he's a fan of Marvel comic books, the Silver Surfer particularly. And it's just like, I don't know, I just like movies about low lives, I guess. Uh, and also the rockabilly influence is fun in it, too. Number eight, obviously, I don't need to say anything about this. Uh, just, again, love this movie. Could watch it a million times, and that's A Christmas Story. Uh, number seven, um, already we're getting into the Stephen King. And, uh, I like, this movie has just always stuck with me more for the film style, of, the filming style of it, and obviously classic director. But talking about uh, Stephen King's John Carpenter's <laughs> Christine, <laughs> mm-hmm. which by the way, Trev, how do you not mark Like, I know John Carpenter got to put his name on all his movies, but how do you not call it Stephen King's John Carpenter's Christine? Yeah, that was one time where Carpenter should have taken the L on that. And yeah, realized yeah. putting King's name on would have given him a little bit more box office, especially at this point. And it's funny too because I, I still have pretty vivid memories of seeing that in the theater as a kid, and it's like really weird because obviously now everybody's amazed by the effects of the car coming back apart, getting crushed, and coming back apart, and all the the scene that always stuck out of my mind, Trev, with that movie is the scene when they're at the drive-in and Christine starts basically making the girl choke in the car. Like I don't know why, like mm-hmm. to me that's the scariest scene in that movie, and it's like super minor. Um, number six. Again, this is like nostalgia. Remember uh, people talking about this movie. Remember renting this movie. Um, it it was a theatrical release, but it was obviously a movie that kind of you know got more play on video. But uh, I don't know if you ever seen this. Trev, you ever seen this film, Nightmares, the anthology horror film? No, I know of it. It's like Mila Westphal is in it, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, to be really fair, it's kind of like uneven. It was one of those things where it was um, it's a universal movie. It was made to be a TV pilot. But, like, they looked at it, and they're, like, they're kind of, like, oh, this is so good that it's, like, we should make this a movie. And, like, they shot, like, literally, like, one or two inserts of blood just to make it R-rated to put in theaters. So, like, you you kind of have, like, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the first story is just a basic urban legend thing of, like, the lady who uh, goes out. She actually goes out to get a pack of cigarettes, and um, she... Uh, she, you know, while she's in the store, uh, basically a serial killer jumps in the back of her car and he's in the back seat waiting to kill her. And like everybody's trying to warn her and, you know, shit. And, and you know, and then the second one, I think is the second story is like the really crazy Emilio Estevez ones where he's it's like what I love about it, too, is like it, it was the movie or it came out right before Repo Man. And he kind of plays a prototype of Repo Man. Like he doesn't have the spiked hair, but he kind of has the punk thing. He's always listening to a Walkman. And he's listening to pretty much a lot of the bands that were on the repo man soundtrack too um and he gets obsessed with this arcade game the bishop of battle and he's like he's like there's a rumor that nobody's ever beaten it so he wants to beat this arcade game and like basically he sneaks into an arcade breaks in at night and like the arcade game like basically breaks apart and like all the like it's amazing it's like tron not even tron level but like early 80s cgi animation things are like coming it's like a little gun game so he's got the gun and he's like trying to shoot the shit that's like trying to you know kill him in the real life like the game comes to life and then the last one is um actually i can't remember if it's the last one no it's not but there there's one where lance henriksen is a priest and it's just a remake of duel but he's getting chased out in the desert by a demonic truck uh i don't know like 
it's it's very low level but it's like when you see it it's one of those things like it's so lovable because it's like the most 80s 80s movie if you know what i mean so like yeah so that's it so so big props to those five movies which like some of those kept bouncing up and down in in, in yeah. and out of my top five but uh yeah so <laughs> can i can i just mention another couple honorable mentions because I mean, you did a couple and I yeah really go started. for it yeah go for it yeah i did my, my top 10 i mentioned project a but another two that kept kind of floating in and out i just wanted to throw attention to and this was this was like a really tough year i am shocked looking at the list of some movies that just got entirely left off because there are some favorites here that i do like to revisit that just didn't make it into my top 10 or honorable yeah. mentions but two i felt worth mentioning are um superman three yeah. I didn't. I won't do Superman two, but Superman three. Look, I'm not blind to the problems with this movie. I realize it's not as good as one and two. Obviously, Donner is very missed. Um, but I think what Richard Lester does with it, in terms of just making a goofy Richard Pryor comedy into a Superman movie, there's still some really good stuff in this. Um, and I've always really enjoyed the whole sequence where Superman goes evil. Um, mm, yeah. Even culminating in like the the fight between you know. Uh, good Clark and bad Superman. Um, so yeah, I, I dig that movie, uh, even though it's really sloppy. And then yeah. another one, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing this is a movie you like. I don't know. I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but uh, Strange Brew. Oh yeah, Man, I, like, I watched a lot talk as about, a like, kid. Talk about a pop culture like sensation of a time that's completely kind of forgotten about today. I don't think, um, you know, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas as the McKenzie brothers has really held on at all in the pop culture, which is surprising because I even remember when I was in my like, early 20s McFarlane toys about this like really good Mackenzie brothers action figure set I remember you know that. like it was it was still holding on for a while. I, I had that I don't know why I got rid of it or if I or if I did or if maybe it's in a box somewhere at my mom's house but uh but yeah no I love Strange Brew just such a bizarre weird comedy always remember being just fascinated that Max von Sydow agreed to play the bad guy in it <laughs> the yeah. evil brewery owner um but yeah it's a it's just got a really odd comic sensibility and if you're a fan of SCTV or those guys like definitely definitely check it out if you haven't and also go listen to the Mackenzie Brothers album because it's awesome. Oh, I've never heard of the album. Like, what is it like? Oh yeah, uh, it's great. It's like them doing like um, they've got like a song called like okay, what I can't remember what the main song is called, but I know it's got like Getty Lee from Rush like helping mm. them with it, and then it's got them doing like their version of the Twelve Days of Christmas. You know, it's it's your standard like kind of comic parody album, which just a bunch of different songs with like the Mackenzie Brothers putting their twist on it. It, it, like, it was like I had that I had that, I had it on cassette as a kid, and now oh, I wow. can get it on all the streaming services. Like maybe this is like a weird equa- thing to equate it to, but like to me, Strange Brew is like the original Spinal Tap. Like Spinal Tap took a good like five to seven years to become the cult hit that it was. Like after it hit video, and I feel like Strange Brew was like this this like this big big cult hit like right away, like within two it was. years I mean, of it, it coming out. I was like. When I was like a kid going into teenager, Strange Brew was one of the movies that like the cool kids liked. Right, right. right. Like you knew, you knew you found someone with like a cool comic sensibility if they liked Strange Brew because it was never a big mainstream thing, yeah. but it was one that like already was like kind of a cult hit. But I feel like that's just a cult hit that hasn't held on the same way as some do. And it's weird too, like, and maybe there's another another reference point that I don't know about. But to me, I always equated Strange Brew as being the thing that started the kind of like kind of mocking in american culture of canadians mm, yeah like the it's, hoser it's, it's, and a and maple syrup yeah. and all that shit like yeah and it's but it's them they're canadian doing it too. right That's right yeah. yeah so yeah so, i just wanted to throw those two out because i felt it, I, I didn't want to not say anything about them i can't remember like when we would do the movie of the year that we didn't like but i think sometimes we would throw it in before we went into the top five do you just want to do the negative one now so we don't end on a negative note trev 
Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So yeah, so so this was a, a year where like I had to search really hard, Trev, to find a movie that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I did not. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So again, this is just something I've tried to watch this a couple times, and when I say try to watch, I don't mean like I popped in and out of like whatever. Like I tried to watch it from beginning to end. Um, I think twice, like like recently, like within the last five or six years, because it was always playing on. Uh, uh, it might have been in MGMHD, I'm not sure. But I recorded this, and I would try to watch it, and I was like, oh, you know, I couldn't get into it. But um, that movie uh, that's like, uh, it's like a parody of classic 50s science fiction called Strange Invaders with Paul LeMatt in it. I could never get into mm-hmm. that movie. Um, I just, I tried and tried, and it just seemed like something that was up, up my alley, but I could never get into it. And I want to say, uh, I was reading the Wikipedia about it, I want to say it was shockingly... Uh, I can't remember. I don't think he directed, but I think it was like one of the first writing things of Bill Condon, who would go on to do like Gods of Monsters and Twilight and all that kind of shit. So hmm. I was surprised, I was surprised looking, to find out he was behind it. But yeah, it's just, it, yeah, I'm looking it's, at it now, and I'm not even sure I've ever even seen this. Yeah, it's super obscure, and like I didn't even know it exists until a couple years ago. Um, I don't have it anymore, but for a while there, I want to say like around twenty. 15 2016 ish i think maybe it's 2016 ish i got dish network and they had some really obscure obscure um movie channels like one was called retroplex one was called movieplex and then obviously mgmhd which is no no longer around was my favorite movie channel unfortunately but it's no longer around those three would like play that movie a lot so and i I looked at the year and anything that's from the 80s like we catch in the guide that i never even heard of i'd be like oh shit i need to see this and like it's got a good cast and everything, but just when I would watch it, it just seemed like, even though it's even though it's like a real movie, you know, like with a real budget and real actors you've actually heard of, like it, you just watch it, and it just seems like some student film shit. Like I, the, the the only other movie I can think of that I came across that uh, was like that, and I, we brought it up I think on a previous episode was like it just reminds me a lot of like shitty in the same way that Student Bodies was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I think I, I think in my head, like anytime I saw that movie, I think I was like conflating it with uh, Hooper's Invaders from Mars. Right, right. And like thinking it was like the same thing, but obviously from what you're saying, it's not. But I do yeah. see Nancy Allen is in it, so I mean, I still yeah. would watch it. Well, yeah, but... Nancy Allen, Paula Matt. So I'm just like, yeah, but I don't know. M- maybe one day I'll come across it again on streaming or cable, and I'll finally get yeah. into it. Well, the one I decided to choose, you know, it's funny because my other podcast is uh, Failure to Franchise, where we look yeah. at movies that fail to start a franchise. But we've often talked about how we're so happy we don't have to do franchise killers. Like, the movies that are so bad, they, like, <laughs> yeah. destroy the franchise. And that's where this falls. And I will say quickly, for, like, a, a little bit of an honorable mention here, for a long time when I knew we were going to pick, like, one movie we didn't like, I thought for sure, for me, it was going to be Octopussy, which oh, is yeah. just my least – that's my least favorite Bond movie. Um, I'm not really big into the Moore era in general, but I really yeah. think that's, like, the ultimate, like, nadir of the whole franchise. I just think it's, like, incomprehensible and, and not fun, even though it's trying so hard to be, a, like, another goofy Moore movie. Um, but ultimately then remembered another movie that I hate even more from 83. And that is a franchise killer. It's uh, Curse of the Pink Panther. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, so, like, you know, after uh, Peter Sellers' death, Blake Edwards just could not let the series go. And he used the footage left over from, like, outtakes and, you know, um, you know, uh, alternate scenes to cobble together Trail of the Pink Panther, which is okay. Like, it's not a great movie, but you're happy it exists just to see, like, what was the last remaining footage of Sellers as Clouseau. And then they pushed it too far and did one more, 
with no remaining Peter Sellers footage. Uh, 83 gave us Curse of the Pink Panther. And this is just such a train wreck. And actually, Roger Moore's in this as well. He actually plays Clouseau, um, having gotten plastic surgery to now look like Roger Moore. That Ooh. scene, find it on YouTube and watch it. It's amusing to watch Roger Moore do, you know, his Peter Sellers Clouseau impression. But I would say that's probably the only thing you really want to sit through in this movie. The, the ultimate death of this movie is that because this was intended to maybe start a new version of the franchise, they're like, well, we'll create a new, like, you know, goofy, you know, bumbling detective. He'll be American. And maybe this would have worked if they had got an actual, like, kind of up-and-coming, rising comic star. Right. But instead, they got this guy, Ted Wass. Uh, he was on Soap. Um, and I remember Ted Wass, just, yeah. Yeah, he's just, like, he's such a, like, a nothing in this movie. And, like, his his lack of comic energy just kills the entire thing, like, from, from the minute one. And so it's really sad to see, like, the Pink Panther movies, like, limp along to this final point and have this be, like, the, the last statement of Clouseau. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm so glad like the the Pink Panther box that I have doesn't even have this in it. It's just only got the ones that have Sellers footage. Oh wow, yeah, I was gonna say because I I like this kind of piqued my interest because I remember this movie uh, not necessarily like coming out, but I remember it being on cable through the years, and I just never watched it as a kid. Like I never as a kid, I I, I couldn't grab onto the Pink Panther films. Like I would try, and like I think I think I was just too young really to appreciate it. And um, when you were going over this recently on Failure to Franchise, like. I can't believe um, Blake Edwards would resort to this. Like, I can't even believe that this was legal to like reuse this footage of Peter Sellers like after he passed away. Well, the, uh, to, the like... Peter Sellers family did sue them, and I think yeah. they got like a good settlement out of it. I don't know what the final thing was in that, but I think I believe they you know won or got a settlement. So yeah, it's it was it's weird because I see both sides of it. I see like the ugliness of it, but like I said, I also see the fact of with Trail being kind of nice to get to see that footage, you know, yeah. and not having it just be like, obviously the thing is this is a different era. Um, they didn't know that some later on there'd be like DVD sets where you could just put, you know, the right, alternate right. scenes. And alternate. Yes. So they thought like, well, if you we want to see them, we'll, we'll cobble a movie together, but really going further and doing a movie without him here was like, that's yeah. a step too far. I think. Yeah, it's just weird that, like, they were doing that shit back then. And, I mean, obviously that's before most households in America even had a VCR, let alone the home video boom. So, like, I know what you're saying. Like, it, it, it makes a little bit of sense, but it's just, like, it's just so weird that that was done. Like, I'm so yeah. curious because you know how, like, kind of the, the lame, fake, non-controversy of our time, Trev, is, I want to see Michael Myers in Halloween 3 and Michael Myers wasn't in it. Like, but it's just like, well, why? Like the Halloween 3 trailer never showed or mentioned Michael Myers. Whereas I wonder with that Peter Sellers shit, I wonder if there was legitimately people that were like furious sitting in a theater. You know what I mean? I have to imagine there's people furious in a theater watching this one. (laughs) It's just because it's so bad. (laughs) You know what's so weird? Like, I don't, what do they call it? The Mandela effect where, um, you know, you you remember one thing from your childhood, but it turns out it was completely different. Like, uh, like they people always think that there was a movie called Shazam starring Sinbad as a genie. Oh um, yeah, yeah. Well, like kind of my moment of that with the uh, the later Pink Panther movies, the one that they made with Roberto Benigni. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I remember um, that that like whatever coming out, and I remember thinking that it was like not Roberto Benigni, but this like really obscure actor, and I can't find his name. But there was like this really guy, there was this guy that played like a nerd basically in 80s movies. And he always like, 
his characters always had a runny nose or like he had a really nasally voice and like he was very like ubiquitous i would say from probably like 85 to 92 just always pop- like popping up actually mostly in commercials but also sitcoms and i always thought that guy i don't know what his name is but i always thought that guy was in that movie so years later to find out it was actually roberto benini in that movie it was so fucking weird but mm-hmm. anyway so uh so yeah, so I figure now, like now that we're getting into the real meat of our things, we'll go back to our formula of just kind of trading off. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I'll go ahead and get it kicked off here, and uh, this is one that I think a lot of people um, would be surprised that are on here. And I just recently covered this on the podcast, but it's like it's kind of a mixture of both the nostalgia and modern day. So I watched this movie a lot of times on cable as a kid, Trev, and I always loved it. I loved that it was an 80s movie, but it was a period piece. I always thought it was set in the 50s, but it was actually set in the early 60s. And then just, uh, shoot, probably like uh, 10 years ago, I got it in like an MGM 5 or 6 pack, rediscovered it then, loved it as an adult, and then I picked up the Blu-ray. But dude, I'm going to shock the world here, and I am a huge, huge fan. Well, probably not shock the world, because I already did an episode about this, but... uh, Dude, I love Tom Cruise's Losing It, directed by Curtis Hansen. Um, I pretty much said, like, whatever I wanted to say about it on the episode. But it's just such a, like, to me, this is, like, the better, more superior version of Porky's. Uh, have you ever been a fan of Losing It, or have you ever even seen this one, Trev? Uh, you know, honestly, and I'm sure this is, like, not the right way to experience Losing It. I know the only time I saw it was on, like, basic cable. You oh, know, like, when oh, Comedy yeah, Central, dude. like, re-aired it. And, like, so I've seen a a heavily edited version of it yeah and, like, and even that's like years ago when comedy central still showed old 80s movies like it's it's not quite as raunchy in terms of like language or like you know like like there's not really like boobs on screen nonstop, but there's like a lot of weird situations where like i think they would have to cut around like when they go into the whorehouse or really this whole section when they're in the there's like a bar that's like connected to a house upstairs and there's like a guy doing a piano show and he's like doing like basically filthy limerick songs while girls dance and then later the one guy ends up getting in trouble in a rowdy bar because he's trying to find a donkey show so i would imagine uh losing it would have to be heavily censored on tv but yeah i love losing it great early performance by Cruz, but really just the ensemble of jackie earl haley playing his friend and then um the guy john stockwell playing the other friend and like i watched kind of like a mini documentary of it on youtube within the past week and i was really surprised to see that um well maybe not so because i always thought it was just obviously just a job Cruz did early in his career but like yeah like he basically didn't like the movie he didn't want to do the movie um it's just we're in the porky's heyday and he was friends with jackie o'haley so he's like okay i'll do it just because my friend's doing it and like whatever uh but like in his agents wanted him to do it supposedly but like yeah i was like really surprised to hear that he basically hated it from the get-go and pretty much disowned the film from the moment of release because like that was like a huge year for Cruz. um he had losing it all the right moves and risky business all come out in the same year and like to all different varying degrees of success so i don't i don't think of any actor who kind of had a big splash out year with that many films coming out in one year like you know kind of before they had made it as a star so like yeah um i don't know i was gonna say like the the only other one that pops to mind is jim carrey had that year of like ace ventura the mask and dumb and dumber but we all already know who jim carrey was at that point right like like he already had made his name on a living color yeah so yeah i'll turn it over to you trev for your number five 
All right, my number five might be surprising that it's like this high on my list that it made it in the top five. I think you've already briefly mentioned it. You and I were even talking about it before we started recording. But I, I really just had to be honest and say, if I'm thinking about like what movies are my favorites and what's, which ones I've revisited and thought about the most, um, I'm going to go with Bob Clark's A Christmas Story. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is, um, you know, just recently, this December, my girlfriend and I wanted to watch like just tons of diff- different Christmas movies. And we sat down and watched this one in preparation for the new sequel, which I did quite like. Um, but yeah, like this is a movie that I don't want to say we were forced into liking it as kids, but it definitely is another one where it's just, you know, there was that tradition where every Christmas Eve TNT or TBS would show this for 24 hours straight and you would just see it like, you know, you would, there was just an osmosis of watching this movie over and over and over again. And honestly, I don't know if I ever watched it from beginning to end until this year, uh, earlier or like, you know, earlier this year, or I guess last year now, uh, December, but Watching it from beginning to end for the first time in a long time and realizing how much of it I had memorized, even in any kind of order, it's just every scene is great. And it's actually the kind of the perfect movie to watch out of order because it is just this like it's a nostalgia based movie. Right. It's just all these yeah. different recollections of Gene Shepard. Um, well, here, a fictionalized version of Gene Shepard. But just telling all these like amazing stories about his family and his dad around Christmas time when he was when he was young. And it is laugh out loud funny. There's so many iconic moments. The performances are all great, especially from kid actors. With that's not always the case. You know, Ralph Billingsley is really, really good in this as Ralphie, um, and his friends are all really funny too. And yeah, it's just it's a it's a really sweet, well done, just kind of undeniable Christmas classic. And I think it it holds up to the multiple viewings it gets put out into every year because who would hate this movie? You know? Exactly. So that's the thing is I was thinking like I know sometimes you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have this tendency to want to discount holiday movies from lists like this. Yeah, yeah. But then I was just thinking to myself, well, no, but honestly, I've seen this a lot through my life, and it's entertained me every time, so I might as well give it its due. Yeah, and it's funny, too, like how you said, like, like rewatching it again for the first time, beginning to end in a while recently as well. Um, it's weird, like... Like you, like I remembered bits and pieces of it, like actually the majority of the movie, but I, re, but I thought I was remembering bits and pieces of it, but it's really, when you watch it, it's really like the whole movie is really just a bunch of string together vignettes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, we just also have to acknowledge the, the, the oddness of it coming from Bob Clark, you know, yes. who done Black Christmas, you know, yeah. to do, to do two of my favorite Christmas movies, but they're so different, obviously, yeah. in two entirely different subgenres, and they're both just undeniable classics, like that rules too. Yeah, like I, like, I didn't want to give people Christmas overload, but I originally, like, we did do a Christmas story episode last month, and like, I was, I was wanting to do like a double feature almost with like release Christmas story, and then like a week later... Uh, release black christmas i was like well it just ended up not working out really but uh yeah like it's kind of weird because it's like really because of black christmas not to get off too much of a tangent but really because of black christmas i really became a i guess lack of better term christmas horror fan Mm -hmm. and it's like really weird that the two subgenres of like christmas movies you know that i like you know legit christmas movies Christmas Story and Horror Christmas, Christmas Horror, I guess, are both Bob Clark films. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, rolling along on my list, number four. Um, again, I think this is uh, kind of a combination of the lead actor and the, the, the kind of sensibility and kind of sickness the director can bring to this sort of... Uh, um, material, but number four, Trev, I, I do have Stephen King's David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone on my list, 
And this is just a movie that just always stuck with me. Uh, I can't remember if I saw it theatrically or not. I, I probably did, but but I know I saw it early on as a kid. And I just, there was something about it, like from the opening, I don't know, like just from the opening of that movie, even before Johnny has his uh, car wreck, like there's just a sense of dread in that film. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, like I know the Dead Zone kind of seems like a tame movie now in a lot of ways. You know, it basically culminates in him like trying to assassinate a guy that he knows is going to take over and basically create World War Three, But like... Martin Sheen's so great, but like that scene where he realizes that the the serial killer, also a movie, I guess that's kind of like a lot of little vignettes string together in a way. But the the scene where they realize the sheriff's deputy is the serial killer, and like they go into that super like the atmosphere of that super decrepit house, Trev, and then the guy commits suicide by impaling himself on a pair pair of like bathroom scissors. Mm -hmm. Like it just, this movie has too many images burned in my brain. Like, and it's a movie I've watched a lot, quite frankly, because, you know, I I bought the DVD like very early on, I think right when the DVD came out. And then like, I re I just recently got the, uh, the whole collector's edition, Blu-ray and all that kind of thing. And like, yeah, like this movie just never, and, and I mean, obviously it's way, way, way less, less caliber, but I even enjoyed for the first season or so, like I enjoyed the TV show with Anthony Michael Hall as well. It's just, I don't know. I think it's one of Stephen King's best, like kind of story devices for a character. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and I think what's like, I was going to agree with you to say, you can call that movie tame today, but that scissor scene will never not yeah. be tame yeah. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> always, will always not be tame. Yeah. Um, I also want to just say the, the two quick things. The most fascinating thing about revisiting the Dead Zone today is being reminded of how great of an actor Christopher Walken was before he really became Christopher Walken. Yes. You know, before he really like, and I don't get me wrong, I love Walken. I, I love all the Walken mannerisms, but there was a point where he realized that's what people liked and decided to like really lean into that. And to see him in Dead Zone and just how naturalistic he is and how sympathetic, it's just completely different. And I think it's worth it for people who only know like the meme version of Christopher Walken to go back and watch that movie for sure. That and the deer hunter. Yeah. Um, and then also to say, you mentioned um, the TV show, which I never really got that into, but if we're talking about like things that the dead zone spun off or our ancillary pieces, it does, it did create one of the best uh, Saturday Night Live parody skits. Yeah. The, the SNL dead zone uh, skit with Christopher Walken when he hosted, uh, people should track that down as well. I really love that. That's a version where, it's the same idea. He has the same power, but everything he foresees is just the most banal, <laughs> monotonous. Yeah. Like, oh, she's gonna like slip on some ice, and they're like, oh my gosh, she's gonna hurt herself. No, she's gonna be fine. She's gonna slip. You know, that's <laughs> a, that's that's a really good skit. Yeah, like like I know the ice is gonna break definitely became a meme, but it, it's it's not really meme era Chris Rock, which like as a sidebar real quick like i remember like being curious where like when and where hoo-ha al pacino started and i kind of i kind of traced it back i think to um i love this movie too but uh sea of love with him and ellen barkin i i saw it on cable a couple years ago and i got the blu-ray and um and there was and i never knew this but pacino had like actually taken a break from films for a few years i think and i think sea of love was like his first comeback one and like at that point, uh, hoo-ha, uh, uh, Al Pacino kind of emerged in that film for whatever reason. And I, I was trying to think, and the, you bring that up with the Christopher Walken meme, like, when when was it, do you think, Christopher Walken turned into meme Christopher Walken? Because, like, I can see tiny shades of it maybe in The King of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if I had to pinpoint when he went full fucking walking, like maybe it's like that little role and things to do in Denver when you're dead, where he's like in the wheelchair and he's being kind of goofy. But I think definitely by the time he made Suicide Kings, he it was just Christopher Walken starring as Christopher Walken. What do you think, Trev? I think, honestly, I think a lot of it comes from SNL. You know, he was one of those mm-hmm. early, like, uh, recurring hosts who would yeah. come back quite often, and they gave him his own character with the Continental. <laughs> I love and the I, Continental. Oh, I, oh, don't get me wrong. I love the Continental, yeah. And I just, I mean, I love him as an SNL host. Obviously, he's one of the, the greats. But I really think, like, that persona of him really started to overtake. And I, I think you're right. King of New York has it a little bit. I definitely think by the time you get to, like, the one-two punch of him being a one-scene guy in both True Romance and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, like, that version of Walken was pretty much established where it's like, okay, we, yeah. you know what you're getting with Walken now. And it just... it And, uh, yeah, Suicide King's the same kind of general era, right? So it, it was definitely that. It's definitely the early 90s where it yeah. started to shift into him being like, okay, people like this. I'll, I'll do this. And then the whole thing with, like, oh, did you ever hear he removes all the punctuation from his scripts? And that's why he delivers lines like that. And it's like everything we've heard about him. You know, yeah. it just It just all became... You knew exactly what you were getting every time Walken showed up. And it's it's good. I, I would actually... Um, I. I mentioned Seven Psychopaths earlier. I would yeah. point to that as maybe his last, like, kind of great movie performance. Yeah. And I and I only say that's really only true because I know it's I've seen interviews with him, and I know you and I have talked a lot about this a lot with older actors. It's really unfortunate that Hollywood seems to not want to cast him that much anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just started watching Severance, the Apple Plus show, and he's in oh, that, yeah. and he's really good. And it's cool to see that they don't have the same like worry about bringing Walken back. And I wish, you know, he's still, he's still out there. He's still kicking. Let's get some more meaty roles before we wrap this up, you know? Yeah. I got to say, you know, obviously you always get sad when you see your, you know, all my favorite act. I mean, pretty much my favorite actors are Christopher Walken, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. And like, obviously it really sucks what ageism does. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, obviously Christopher Walken physically is a much older man than he was, you know, when he was in his heyday of the eighties and nineties. But like, it's really weird, like, out of all the guys, like, I feel like Walken is the one, like, even though he's aged, like, he's just still Christopher Walken, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that had to do with, like, even though he does have a physicality, the way he walks, the way he carries himself, is, like, that kind of energy that he has, like, it's just, it's just never really dissipated, and, you know, in a, in a way, and, like, I, I feel like De Niro was, like, pretty, like, much De Niro, like, up and through his mid-60s. Al Pacino, he he, he kind of like he kind of Al Pacino, I think very smartly kind of leaned into the uh, the kind of old man aesthetic early on, even in his fifties. But yeah, Walken, man, like he just like I don't know, like I guess because he's kind of like a little bit of an unpredictable performer. Like he just always seems like a guy who always has a, a reservoir of energy that he can tap into, and yeah. like you know, like he just has a whole mental thing going. Like I remember as a kid, like seeing Christopher Walken, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with always catching the deer hunter on TV, but I always thought he was like kind of a crazy guy that they turned into an actor. <laughs> if that makes any <laughs> sense. And, uh, like from, uh, hearing the guys like Jay Moore and Johnny Galecki talk about working him on, working with him on suicide Kings is like, it was like, obviously that was like, a uh, you know, a young guys, you know, Henry Thomas as well. Like that was like a young guy's crew in that movie. Um, and like, obviously they were all like, you know, excited to be working with Christopher Walken. I remember them specifically talking about like 
like from the first rehearsal just everybody stopped fucking around because walking came he had all these notes in his script and all this and the, the discussions he was having and i feel like there's like a little bit of an idea that christopher walken just shows up to show up and i know there is a thing where like he did a lot of direct-to-video movies during i think like the mid 90s when his career was kind of slowing down a little bit so like i think there's like an idea that christopher walken just shows up and just kind of like does his shtick and leave but like yeah, like I think he's I think he's a lot more of a classical actor than people mm-hmm. think he is. And I think I think even though we kind of see the walkinisms coming out in a lot of different roles, I think I think there's like a lot more preparation there and thought behind yeah, it. Yeah, and that's why I'm really excited and I'm I I have really high hopes for. I'm I don't know if you know this, but he's actually been cast as the emperor in Dune Part 2. Oh, no, I uh, didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, so that like that's really cool that Villeneuve is like willing to like still give him like an, another shot. Um, you know, where a lot of Hollywood seems to not be willing to. And that's like a pretty, that character can be pretty outrageous, but I also think like, you know, he's not going to go full walking because you got to fit the tone of like what Villeneuve is doing with Dune. So I think that's going to be like a really great, like late stage career performance for him. Yeah. Imagine if a lazy ass JJ Abrams, instead of just bringing back uh, the great Ian McDiarmid to play an old crippled, like, like we just had a new emperor in star Wars and it was Christopher Walken. How amazing that would have been. <laughs> yeah. You... I don't want Walken stuck in that movie though. <laughs> no, no, no. But Walken and Adam driver. Like, I feel like Adam driver is like, even though he's completely different from Christopher Walken, I feel like Adam driver is like, the current day Christopher Walken where it's like he's big he's in movies people like him but people really don't understand Adam Driver and I feel like that's kind of like how Christopher Walken was for a lot of years mm-hmm. but yeah enough of that moving right along what do you got at number four Trev all right my number four might be another surprising one I mean not if you know me personally yeah. but if you're just thinking like well you know you're looking at the list of all these like incredible critically acclaimed movies that came out uh, 1983 and you're thinking well you know he's got like brian de palma movies to choose from of course you got like adrian lynn movies what's he gonna pick uh let me class it up a little bit and say my number four is sleepaway camp <laughs> now this is this is one where uh honestly like i've always liked sleepaway camp i feel like i've just fallen more and more in love with it like in recent years because I, I don't know like i you know i got the good like at that scream factory blu-ray um was able to like appreciate it without being a shitty you know bad vhs <laughs> dub or whatever and just it's it's an absolutely insane bonkers movie but it's just right up my alley in terms of that kind of insanity that kind of bonkers approach to a slasher film obviously culminating in one of the you know most famous iconic final shots of any slasher film felissa rose i don't know how old she was when she did this what 12 or 13 you know like very very young but and i you know you could say oh silent performances are easy that's not true she's really really good in this like she's giving a better performance than the movie might deserve honestly and i think that honest that also plays a big part in why it's remembered um you know one of my favorite scenes of of the 80s uh with the the aunt uh aunt you know aunt martha is just one of the great characters one scene characters of all time yeah and and just a fascinating film you know you can get you can get very if you want to be pretentious and like you know, film snob about it. You can really examine the movie, what it has to say about transgender, you know, characters and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or you can just enjoy it as a really stupid but fun slasher movie. It works both ways, and I love movies like that that kind of can appeal in both those aspects. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not here to claim it's really one of the best movies of the '80s, but one of the ones that speaks to my kind of sensibilities for sure. Yeah, like, uh, dude, like I I remember it so clearly uh seeing that movie for the first time it was like one of the few times um uh 
I don't know if there's just maybe nothing out of the movies to go see, but I remember specifically my dad and I on one of his off days were watching it on cable one night. And I want to say we even, I want to say we even like came into it, like not in the middle, but like a good 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes into it. And we were just like, there was nothing else on. Like, oh, this looks good. Let's watch this, you know? I remember when that, that end scene rolled. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, however old I was, I don't know. Uh, uh, by the time it had hit cable, it was, it was probably a couple years after it came out. But like, I was young; I was well under ten, and I remember like, in the most being the most amazed and dumbfounded, and not even understanding how they did that in the movie. And like, I remember my dad being like, just being like, kind of shaking his head and being like, <laughs> and I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was. <laughs> Cause I prompted him like, like, what was that? How'd they do that? I remember my dad being like saying something just like, uh, they just had some guy stand there with a mask on and it like shattered their illusion because, cause you know how like sometimes you kind of get more fooled by movie illusions as a kid, Trev, but mm-hmm. I genuinely like, like I didn't see any, when you watch it now, obviously like, you know, you kind of see what's going on there, but at the time, that was like the most amazing thing. I I'm like yeah. I'm not even downplaying it. That was really or upplaying it. I'm not exaggerating. That like I was dumbfounded. And I was pretty film savvy even at the age of like eight or nine or whatever how old or what it was because I've seen so many movies and even I was like wow I was taken so aback by it. Yeah, yeah. It's like one of my holy grails. You know, I, you know, I've met like a lot of horror celebrities at different yeah. cons and got my pictures taken with them. I've never met Felissa Rose, and that's still mm. like it's still a holy grail for me because I know when you get a picture take with her she's willing to do like the face yeah, right? yeah and it's just like that's a picture i still really want is to is to get a chance to meet her and get that yeah like i'm so i'm so glad that she came back to acting and the way mm-hmm. she's just she's she's like, awesome. so about yeah and like i watched some of her youtube stuff and the way she's just she's all about that life and i, I love mm-hmm. it and i'm so glad that you know i mean obviously some of these movies she does now like to be honest they're they're not the best they don't have really much of a budget i just wish somebody like you know, like, like I'm, I'm blanking on who, but like, I just wish somebody who made like kind of medium budget director video movies would put her in something good because I think she's still got a lot to offer as an actress. I, uh, since you brought that up, Trev, because they're out of print here, I had to get some uh, English imports just like just recently, just within the last uh, I think month, month and a half. I finally uh, picked up. The uh, this the parts two and part three. What do you think about those? Where uh, Pamela Springsteen play, take play, takes over Angela? Are you into those films at all? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, yeah, I, I I especially like part two. I yeah. think part three maybe moves a little too far into just pure comedy. I still like it, but I think part two is is really is a really strong sequel, and I actually really love Pamela Springsteen yeah. as Angela. I think like what she does with that part, where she just plays like the ultimate like optimistic happy slasher i think yeah. it's it's very entertaining and it, it you, i watch those and it's the same kind of thing where I, I really wish she had kind of stuck around in the business a little bit more yeah i think I, she's like very very likable in those but yeah I, I think those are worth checking out they're obviously very different kind of movies than yeah. the first one but uh but no they're they're worthy sequels and same thing i've i i think i know the british blu-rays you've been talking you're talking about yeah, I, yeah. I, I i almost pull the trigger on those all the time because i'm like yeah i do need those 
Do you um? Do, I don't know. I didn't even, like know it came like this till I got it. But I want. I can't remember if it's part two or part three. Whichever one that had the 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 backpack with the Freddy glove and all oh, that. Yeah, and the model who's not Pamela Springsteen. Yeah, yeah, that one. It, it has reversible artwork on the import one, and it has like whatever foreign poster, and it's actually really it's shockingly really good artwork. But it's like got like an alternate title of like I forget what it was like Nightmare Camp or something. But like they actually go as far as to like you know do, do an artist rendition of like Freddy Krueger like on the cover of that. It's just, it's pretty fucking amazing. But yeah, the, to pour some more uh, beer out for my dead homies at MGMHD. Uh, uh, I didn't even know it till Halloween night. There, like we had MGMHD on and we were seeing the bumper on there that that was the last night for MGMHD and. Uh, out of all the classic MGM library films they could have played, Trev, the channel ended on a screening of uh, uh, Sleepaway Camp 3. <laughs> That's great. How appropriate. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so moving on to uh, my number three. Really, I mean, I mean, I don't, not much to say here. I mean, we talk about this movie all the time. But uh, number three for me was Return of the Jedi, Trev. Okay. Um, I mean, I just love the, the, the original Star Wars trilogy. Really, the, the first six Star Wars movies I, I just love. But this was the one, because I, I was born literally right when the original Star Wars was released in theaters. Um, like, And I don't really remember. Obviously, I would have been like about three years old or so when, the, when Empire came out. So I don't really remember. But like, yeah, like I was a good, you know, thankfully George Lucas was spreading those films out, not just pumping them out the way Disney does. But uh, I, I, I was a solid six years old. And like I that was like my first movie, Trev, Return of the Jedi, like that I was like, I guess, aware enough that the hype was building. And I was like waiting months to see. And uh, we had the Rolling, my dad had a subscription to Rolling Stone. And I had, I don't know if you ever seen it, Trev, but that classic Rolling Stone cover with uh the star wars character at the beach Mm -hmm. and uh uh, carrie fisher's in the bikini and shit and i just remember getting that and like literally reading that article over and over and over just looking at the pictures and shit and just advertisements and magazines and shit so like i actually have like a really good and i remember like like you know because my dad was always off on wednesdays and thursdays and i remember uh, that coming out on the weekend and just being like, oh my god, like I just couldn't wait for my dad's off days to come so he could go, you know. And then, uh, and then like also too, because I was always buying the Star Wars, uh, uh, or my parents obviously were buying the Star Wars toys for me. And I remember Trev, it was such the damn hunt to find the Ewok figures themselves. That those were the hardest fucking ones to find at that time. It was crazy. So like, yeah, just nothing but good memories about Return of the Jedi. A little bit as an adult, I guess maybe the sheen of whatever wore off um, in terms of them recycling the Death Star. I've never been a fan of just constantly recycling the Death Star. That's why I don't really like uh, Force Awakens. But uh, there was just there was like an energy. I really love like the first act of Return of the Jedi. Like I love yeah. that we saw Jabba. The, obviously, Jabba the Hutt being seen in a movie was such a big deal at the time. The character, but like I just love that we just start out on this kind of like small thing of like the. The, you know, and obviously the the TV shows like Mandalorian, Boba Fett have expanded on it, but I really like that that criminal underworld element of Star Wars, and that was the first movie to really bring that to us. I think so. 
Yeah, it it start it's that's the thing with the Return of the Jedi. It starts really strong. The entire Tatooine Jabba like sequence is great, mm-hmm. and it, and and it ends really strong. And that's what you want it to do. You know, the yeah. final Luke Vader Emperor, uh, you know, confrontation, yeah. uh, inter intercut with the battle in Endor. It, that's all great. You know, yeah. it, it gets a little shaggy in the middle. And I think ultimately what what always has hurt me with Return of the Jedi is I don't love seeing Han turn into such a goofball. Um, <laughs> That's always kind of a bummer for me, but but ultimately it's not enough. Of, it's not a deal breaker. Like it's like I said, it's still a really effective trilogy capper. Yeah, like I don't know where that came from with the Han Solo thing, Trev. I get, I know supposedly, you know, it's legendary that that Harrison Ford wanted to be killed off, wanted to be killed off, and I'm like, I'm just kind of like, okay, like that was your your request or whatever, and you didn't get it, but obviously you still did the movie and everything. Still had a great relationship with George Lucas because you were doing Indiana Jones with him as well. But any idea where that turn with uh, Han Solo came from? Was it just that he was supposed to finally make a full circle journey into a complete hero? Or I think that's what it is, right? That's the way I've always rationalized in yeah. my head of that. In like Lucas's mind, the ultimate way to show his growth and to show that he's like now a true like friend and part of the group is just to have him be a more comic character. Yeah. It was like a little bit of a miscalculation, but it, it like I said, it doesn't like it doesn't ruin the character. It's just not the take I personally yeah. love. I think the the one scene that where he's kind of like still kind of like classic Han Solo is when he gets mad at uh, Princess Leia because he thinks she still has the hots for Luke. Yeah. And he's like, what? he's like, why can't you tell me? He's like, who can you tell, Luke? Can you tell Luke? <laughs> that's the, that's the last gasp of real Han Solo before we just see him dancing merrily with the Ewoks at the end. <laughs> so yeah, so please, uh, what's your number three, Trev? All right, this is where people are gonna roll their eyes because they're gonna think about how like you put Return of the Jedi here, and I put that in my honorable mentions, and they're gonna be like, I can't believe this pretentious prick is putting this movie at part three, <laughs> but. Uh, and see, you know, going from like the heights of like such a gigantic sci-fi movie, I'm going to choose a sci-fi movie part three. I'm choosing one that only cost 500,000 to make. Wow. Uh, and I'm, and this is like definitely a cult movie. This is not for everybody, but at number three, I'm going to slot in liquid sky, uh, directed by Slava Tuskerman. I'm not even sure if I'm saying his, his name, right. Um, this for me is also like a pretty recent discovery. This is thanks to the fine folks at vinegar syndrome Yeah. who, you know, their whole mission statement is to unearth these very bizarre, you know, cult movies. Um, no, I shouldn't like, actually, I take that back. I actually, I was aware of liquid sky before vinegar syndrome, but like, like I said, seeing an actual good version of it and kind of coming yeah. to reappreciate it is thanks to them. I do actually remember coming across this movie earlier than that on like, you know, again, bad VHS being attracted by like the cover, but really like not getting it when I was younger for sure. Yeah. Cause like, that's pretty easy to not get this movie. And then vinegar syndrome kind of like re-earthing it, putting out a great Blu-ray of it. Um, it's a very, very strange movie. Obviously it's a very, it's an experimental independent weird sci-fi. I don't even know like what genre you throw in beyond sci-fi, whether you call it comedy or whatever. But it takes place in like the new wave fashion world of the early 80s in, in Manhattan. So it was filmed there. So that's a great too. I love movies that take place in uh, New York in like the late 70s and early 80s to get to see that world. Yeah. And obviously this was filmed in the real new wave scene. So you got a lot of like actual extras and, and actors who are part of that world. So obviously the costumes and the makeup is all kind of fascinating. Uh, and what this is about is there are these two characters, um, Margaret, who is like this like model. She's bisexual. She's addicted to cocaine. And then she has this nemesis named Jimmy and he's like her drug connection, but they don't, they don't get along. They hate each other. The interesting thing is they're both played by the same actress. Wow. Uh, Anna, Anna Carlisle does a dual role here and plays both parts. 
she also co-wrote this movie with Slava Tuskerman, so she was like, this was kind of like her part of her like brain, you know, spilled onto the screen. She wanted to play both parts and write the movie. So on one hand, it's the story about you know Margaret's feud with Jimmy, this 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 drug dealer that she's getting involved with, and the and the weird world of all these these new wave fashion models. And then at the same time, a spaceship lands on the roof of Margaret's building, and it turns out that this spaceship is like addicted to anytime someone has like an orgasm in <laughs> in Margaret's building, it like gets the aliens off, uh, and they like love like they love like watching that. And it all turns into, I don't know, it's, it, like I said, it just goes in very strange places. There's this really weird, like, German scientist character who, who knows about the aliens, and he's, like, watching them from an apartment across the street. And there's, like, this bizarre kind of comic subplot with him and the woman whose apartment he, she's letting him stay in while he's watching the aliens. And it's just, a, it's a very, very weird movie. I It wouldn't shock me if some of your listeners go watch it and hate it. Yeah. I know our buddy Bird had taken my recommendation this one, and I don't think he ever even was able to finish it. I wow. think he got mad at me for recommending it. But I don't know. You know me. Like I really like weird, strange movies like this, and I think, I think that is that you're either you're either gonna just be completely put off and baffled by this, or you're going to love it and it's gonna become like one of your favorite cult movies. Like it's just got that kind of sensibility to it. It's really really weird. It has this incredible earworm soundtrack that plays during the whole movie. Um, that was also done by Slava Tuskerman. Um, but yeah, I I always appreciate this kind of wild creativity on such a low budget, and it's the kind of movie. The last thing I'll say about it is, and this is like maybe I know experimental cinema has existed as long as there was cinema. Yeah. But it is the kind of movie you watch it and it's so weird and so different and so bizarre that it kind of like surprises you that it's from like 83, you know, like you kind of think like, oh, they didn't make movies that weird back then. Right. And it's kind of always like nice to be like, oh, no, at the same time, stuff like the other movies we're talking about was being made. There were some weirdos in New York. You know, the New York art scene had a really weird contingent of people who wanted to make a movie like Liquid Sky. But uh, but according to what I saw today, it was the most successful independent movie of the year. Uh, oh, wow. you know, it, it grossed almost two million worldwide really? off of that five hundred thousand dollar you know budget. Yeah, I had no idea that it really even got like a real release. I thought it was just mm-hmm. like a a lost gem that uh, this was like one of those early like it really benefited from it. It, it did really well at film festivals, and I think it like it's it, like you know at that time, uh, kind of the cult film and like film snob scene probably really supported this movie. So. Yeah, like, uh, it definitely seems like um, a movie that would have done really good on the midnight movie circuit, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But yeah. I think it still, I think it still would, right? I think that's still, I think that was a good thing about Vinegar Syndrome rediscovering it. I think it's a movie you could still program today at, like, weird film festivals or repertory theaters, and it would still have the same reaction, because this movie's timeless in how strange it is. So. We're speaking of that, Trev, like, like I like the midnight movie that I was like first introduced to, like not going to see it, but just hearing about like, oh, this is playing at midnight, whatever. It actually wasn't Rocky Horror Picture Show. I remember my cousin talking about like uh, everybody wanting to see Pink Floyd's The Wall. Like this would have been like the early mm. '80s, and like I think there was like one theater somewhere doing a, a midnight show of it. Like, like, what do you, what is your take on like the midnight movie and like kind of what it means to like kind of film, um, I, I guess film culture, I guess, like, like, does it really exist anymore? Like, I know like the really, really big cities, but I mean, like I grew up in Cincinnati and like, I won't say like every theater did it cause it wasn't, there was one or two theaters that did the midnight movie shit on the weekends, but like. Like, I mean, it, it obviously doesn't exist where I live because I don't really have, like, a good, like, film-going culture here. But, like, do, like I mean, is it still alive, do you think? Do you, I mean... 
It does. It certainly doesn't exist the same way beyond Rocky Horror Picture Show still being a thing. You know, like in every mm-hmm. major city, you can still find. I know where I'm from, like my hometown, there's a theater that still every other Saturday night does Rocky Horror Picture Show and has like a very dedicated, you know, following for it. Yeah. I think that's the one that's kind of held on. I think like the midnight movie in general is definitely not a thing anymore. I don't even think many theaters, especially in a post-pandemic world, will stay that open that late no, <laughs> to yeah. program a midnight movie. But I really think just over time, it got supplanted by, you know, with home video and streaming, it got supplanted by people just doing their own kind of get togethers and doing, you know, bad movie or weird movie nights with friends. Yeah. And that is a shame because I, like you said, to what, what the midnight movies meant to film culture, um, you know, you and I just in general, I think we both kind of would, I, I think you'd agree. I'm kind of depressed about the younger generations kind of connection to cinema in general. Yeah. And I don't blame them for that. I think no. it's actually, it's more a byproduct of the way the business has gone and they don't, they, they don't have like the same kind of um, they treat film as more disposable because the studios and streaming services treat it as more disposable. Yeah. And I, I mean, think, I mean, I, th- yeah. I think when you don't have the excitement of weirder movies, you know, being a kind of an event playing at a theater and everyone being like, that's what we should do on Saturday night. Let's go see El Topo or Pink Flamingos yeah. or something. Cause there's certainly still movies being made today like that. You know, I think it's something like the greasy strangler or I know this year there was a movie called All Jacked Up and Full of Worms. You can see these movies mm-hmm. being made. They feel like they're being made to be a midnight movie. But unfortunately, yeah, it's just not really a thing anymore. Yeah, the actual act of putting on a midnight movie is yeah. not. Yeah, I know. Because it's kind of weird because like, the midnight movie was kind of like, it kind of was an interesting kind of, and like I, I remember watching, um, I can't remember, it, it might have even been called Midnight Movie, but there was a documentary a few years ago that kind of documented like and talked to people like some of the early Midnight films and like, you know, like David Lynch's Eraserhead and like, mm-hmm. like there was ones where it's like, it's like there was that circuit in like certain theaters would just play it every midnight at like Friday or Saturday night, whatever. Like they would play the same movie for months and months until attendance dropped off and like, like I get it, the midnight movie scene is like a big sub subculture thing. It's a niche, but it's like it's pretty interesting that like at one point in time in our film culture there was an appetite for that, and like it really seemed like it it brought in not only like legitimate hardcore movie buffs, but you brought in people more from like the you know the art scene and stuff that people just wanted more dangerous art, and then it seemed like also too like kind of the midnight movie was kind of like a gateway drug for a lot of kind of uh normie so to speak who just mm-hmm. wanted to go to a kind of like cool hip event with their friends on the weekend so like yeah, yeah. no when i was a kid there was a great book back published in like the early 90s i think called midnight movies by yeah. jay hoberman and jonathan rosenbaum and if people love film books and you don't have that definitely put it down because it writes about like all those early ones like eraserhead and pink flamingos el topo the rocky horror obviously the ones we've mentioned um, but yeah, I remember when I was a kid getting really into movies, like that was the big thing of, you know, obviously most of what your parents take you to see and most of what you're hearing talked about on TV and in the newspapers is the mainstream stuff. Yeah. And then the excitement of being a kid and learning that there's this, there's this other kind of movie out there, right? This alternate cinema and just, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget. I'm so, you and I were born at just at such a right time, man. Cause yeah, like the excitement yeah. of like not everything being available to you instantly yes. and like reading books like that and feeling like, Oh my God, this stuff feels so forbidden and I got to track it down and find it. Like there was just nothing like that. Yeah. I, I, I got to say too, it's like, uh, I talk about this a lot with people in my personal life, but it's like the world I thought I was going to live in as an adult, like the kind of like the culture and stuff that was a prevalent when like I was a kid and even an early teenager 
it really wasn't like the culture that still existed by the time I wasn't an adult. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just, which is weird. But, uh, but yeah. So moving along my number two movie and, uh, like, number three, I, isn't it? Uh, no, number three was return of the Jedi. I'm sorry. Oh, that's did, right. sorry. did you do yeah, your no. number three yet? Trev? No, you're right. No, you're right. Sorry. Okay. I, yeah. No. So number two, like, when I, you know, I told you, Trev, I had to reorder my stuff because I, yeah. the the order and things were dropping in, things were dropping out. Um, I was surprised this film made it um, so high up on my list, but then again, like I do love this film, and it's weird because it's not there's not anything about it that's really classic or anything. It's just I think it was one of those things like the time period it was made in and, and the attitude it had and shit. Um, but yeah, like I seen this movie as a kid, but I really grew to love it more as an adult. Really, even just like I seen it on TV like the whole time I was growing up. But it was really when I got the Blu-ray, I was like, oh yeah, I like that movie. All oh, the Blu-rays like six bucks. Okay, I'll order it. You know, about seven or eight years ago, I started watching this movie again, and um, probably watched it four or five times over the last six or seven years. But dude, I am all about Tom Cruise and all the right moves. I just love that movie. And like I said, like I did an episode about it. So if anybody wants to hear me talk about it, obviously get that episode. But there's just something about that film. And I think really, like, to me, that movie is like a living, breathing Bruce Springsteen song. It's just all about this kid, you know, through his dream of football. And it's, it's really he wants to get a football scholarship so he can uh, get an engineering degree because he wants to be an engineer. And, um, but obviously his family doesn't have the money. He's like in a dying, um, Pennsylvania steel mill town and just everything about that. It's such an American movie, especially the first half of it. Like it just sets up so much of the working class, like, you know, what it's like growing up in a town there. And then also like his older brother and his dad working in the steel mill. And then like, I don't know, like, like, and obviously Craig T. Nelson plays a football coach and he's really great in it too. But like, and Leah Thompson's amazing in as well, but like I don't know, like I just really, really love all the right moves. It's one of my favorite. Ty- I would say more than anything, because I always went to see Tom Cruise movies growing up, Trev. Because I mean, I went to the movies all the time, and he made a lot. But I won't, I won't say like I really was not a Tom Cruise fan. Uh, like when I was growing up, probably my favorite Tom Cruise movie was Legend, believe it or not. But I didn't really become a like a true fan of Tom Cruise like as a, as an older adult and looking back on some of his his kind of like early roles like you know uh, All the Right Moves or uh, Risky Business or whatever like I just grew to appreciate him more as a performer, and I love that there's just still one giant major movie star uh, still keeping the actor genre alive and he jumps out of planes and he does crazy shit but like. I just really miss small, intimate actor Tom Cruise, and uh, I think this was kind of the beginning of his run as far as, like, really get, you know, like, I love losing it and all that, but, like, he does a good job in the role he has there, but, like, I feel like this movie was the first time he was really flexing his acting muscles. And he was also great, too, but in a much smaller role in Taps, but I feel like this one is the first mm-hmm. time he's really truly carrying a movie. I thought he did a great job. This is one I should revisit. I don't think I've seen this since I was a kid. Yeah. Like for me, like it's it's risky business is obviously the one I'm I'm more familiar with. Yeah. It's just obviously the bigger one. But uh, yeah, so I, I I honestly have I can't really say too much about this because my memory is pretty hazy of it. But uh, you've made you know you've you got me intrigued to go back and revisit it. Yeah, like again, it's it's not this huge. You know, obviously, the great Chris Penn, uh, much younger than I mean, well, you know, he's no longer with us, but young Chris Penn doing a great role, and it's just it's one of those movies. 
it's not a movie with with life or death circumstances but it's just really one of those movies that's just really mature in terms of like being on the press you know it's, it's just basically that story trev of like being a, a a you know a young adult and like making the choices and and trying to you know basically start your adult life and uh you know get your education and do things that will pay off later in life and like you know everybody kind of has that moment when they're young no matter which way you go of trying to choose what you want to do and then maybe possibly screwing it up all the you know like that's why literally the movie's called all the right moves because he's trying to make all the right moves uh to get his you know life going and escape this dying town and shit but like i think it's severely underrated like it's just a good solid like you can watch this movie on any uh, rainy sunday afternoon and i think you're going to really appreciate it so yeah so you know all the praise for all the right moves i'm cruising home with all the tom hits of 1983 here trip stay tuned to see if risky business is your number one <laughs> yeah it might be you don't know it might be uh well my number two is i believe uh the first filmmaker is going to make a double appearance on this list because um you know it's one thing you know it, it's pretty impressive when any time a director gets two movies out in one year and it just shows you the, the breadth of talent. So it's a pretty good year. I think you can say you had, if you put out both the dead zone and my number two Videodrome yep. from David Cronenberg, uh, man, I love Videodrome might be my favorite Cronenberg movie. Honestly, it's definitely in contention. Um, you know, just obviously for those who aren't familiar with it, stars James Woods as the, the like head of a small UHF station, television station, who's kind of always looking for the next thing, the program, you know, cause obviously he's, he's, he's a small fish in a big pond trying to compete against the big networks, the big, the, the big boys. And he kind of stumbles across this really bizarre broadcast signal of really strange, weird confrontational, what appears to be snuff films. And he becomes really taken by this and wants to track it down and see if he can, you know, somehow exploit it for his own network. And the journey it sends him on is obviously because it's Cronenberg movie from the early eighties very surreal, very confusing uh, in a good way, very bizarre and heads into uh, just nasty, gooey body horror at its best with fantastic effects. An incredible performance from Debbie Harry as well, who's super sexy in this movie. I mean, she always is, but particularly sexy and just really good in this. Again, uh, Debbie Harry, another one who obviously mostly known for her music, but I think never... I think her acting career should have taken off more than it did judging by her performance in something like this. Yeah. I'm surprised she wasn't utilized more. Um, but you know, yeah, you can, you can go back and watch this movie. You know, obviously today it's a little depressing cause you're reminded of what a piece of shit James Woods became in real life, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that doesn't change how great the performer James Woods was, particularly in this era. You know, nobody, nobody plays a sleazebag quite as good as James Woods. So it's maybe not yeah. surprising that he is one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, if you love body horror, if you love surreal, strange sci-fi horror, this is about as good as it gets. And uh, again, you know, a little bit of a cult classic, but one that has held on, you know, has a really kind of loaded criterion release that's worth getting. Yeah. And yeah, it's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I love it so much too. And um, like, if we would have made this movie, or if we would have done this episode maybe 10 years ago, like it, 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 it really would have been up there for me too. Uh, it didn't make my list, uh, surprisingly, but, um, uh, yeah, like, like this movie, I remember getting that, that, that kind of bare bones ass universal DVD as soon as it was like released. Uh, and I mm -hmm. just remember like 
during my college years, Trev, I probably watched this like no less than 15 to 20 times. And it's like, yeah, like I'm, I'm really glad too that you, you, cause like usually people just talk about all the special effects and shit with this, like, but I'm glad you shout out Debbie Harry. Cause like, I think she, I think her in this movie is one of the best kind of like modern, uh, film noir mm-hmm. female characters. Like she just like, it's so, and it's funny too. Cause like, to me, like David Cronenberg and David Lynch are like, so like, I know they kind of get lumped into being the weird filmmakers of the eighties, but like to me, like their kind of brand of horror and body horror and shit is like really different. But I feel like this is like the one movie where like Cronenberg even leans into like almost David Lynch territory here. Cause it's like really the way this, this story unfolds is like, we know there's this grand conspiracy that James Wood is unfolding, but it's like, it's like in his other movies like like there's usually like not a logical explanation but we kind of understand like you know like the fly like you know in the dead zone mm-hmm. like like we we understand the kind of inciting events that are creating what like this shit with this technology that James Woods <laughs> gets biologically co-opted into like we have no like real clue and i know there's like kind of the trail of breadcrumbs like he 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 follows throughout the movie but like this is really some next level surrealist shit i think even for David yeah. Cronenberg, because like his early stuff, like Shivers and all that, it's like yeah, it's like weird and here, but I mean like we see the genesis of where it's coming from. Where this is like, and I think maybe too like, kind of the theme that's running through Videodrome that he was trying to get across was like I think Videodrome, and I've always taken it this way, and I'm curious what you think, but I think Videodrome is really one of the first kind of early, you know, warnings about modern technology. Well, modern technology and like, yeah, the proliferation of TV and like what the expansion of that will mean. And, and yeah. also just like the idea of us being overtaken by our entertainment, you yeah, know, like yeah. getting, you know, just becoming consumers to something and chasing that next thrill. You know, the idea of it being snuff films, you know, just that old that old idea of, you know, when you can see everything, what becomes, you know, you have to search for the next you know, big high right. or your next big, you know, what gets you off and how quickly that can, you know, get dangerous. So yeah, I think this movie has a lot to say that's only been proven true over time. And yeah. also like what you said about like the the oddness of it, but it's just like the right level of strange, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's strange and obtuse, but not to the point of being incomprehensible and only for film nerds like right. Naked Lunch, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's also not as straightforward as like Scanners or right. uh, Rabid, you know? Right. It's just weird enough that I think everybody can kind of dig it. I think I think too like kind of about that too is like I feel like he kind of intentionally like he very slowly dips you into the strangeness. So like when you have like kind of like the climax of the film, like 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 you're on board with it. It it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like like just some shocking ending that comes out of left field. Like you feel like it's a uh, you know a logical progression of like what happens. Like yeah, it's just it's just so crazy how ahead of its time it is, Trev, because it's like it's like we've kind of like went into this whole mode with like the internet social media like even streaming films really like with binge watching and stuff like the instant gratification and the stimulation and like there's very little research about what this does to us and like you know like like basically like with cell phones like text messaging and social media like have been around for a decade or so before like a lot of people really started medically uh 
researching it and like the, just like like little things like that like like our brains get a hit of dopamine when we get a text from a friend and it's just like it's always that instant gratification and like what that does to you and like i think like obviously he, was, he you know it was before the internet era when this film was made but like i feel like in a weird way like uh david cronenberg <laughs> perfectly predicted all of that shit but mm-hmm. like the, the interface of like when technology alters the uh basically the way our brain works so the way our brain works and ultimately our body too mm-hmm. you know? and that's and like i said you know not not to fixate it because you're right it is the thing that gets talked about the most anyways but yeah like rick baker's effects in this oh yeah combined with cronenberg's imagery i mean there's just so much iconic imagery in this you know from the the tv reaching out to obviously the vagina and the stomach and yeah. the flesh gun you know it's just there's so much incredible stuff that once you see the movie you only have to see this way once and that imagery stays with you forever i don't yeah. you know you don't have to revisit it often because it'll be burned into your brain before we move on, uh, I feel like because it was almost like a follow up to for him to kind of just remind you of the themes and whatnot. But uh, wh- what's your take on existence being almost an extension of Videodrome? Oh yeah, no, I love existence, and I think I think the um, the lack of a good existence home video release yes. is the only thing that's really kept it from yeah. remaining in conversation. Is like one of his, you know, it's obviously you know I don't think it's one of his peak films, but it's no. it's it should be in conversation with all that other great body horror he did. And unfortunately that's the one of that era that seems a little too forgotten about, but yeah, you're right. It's a great companion pieces for sure. Big time. All right. So, um, I'll burst the bubble right now. Unfortunately, risky business is not my number one trip. <laughs> okay. All right. And this is a movie that like kind of, when I was like looking at the list and stuff, the films that came out, but I was just like, I was kind of, I mean, not surprised that this movie made my list. Cause I love it. Um, but I was surprised it ended up being my number one because I've really only, thinking about it, I've really only seen this movie. For, I mean, I've seen pieces of it on TV, but I've only seen this movie from beginning to end, I think, three times. You know, the first time being, like, I remember vividly uh, seeing it in the movie theater. Like, we were walking in, like, maybe, like, one minute late and the credits starting and just the imagery of the, the opening title sequence kind of set the mood for me and got me into the movie. And I, you know, I, and we talked about this movie too, Trev. But, um... Uh, I watched it again recently within the last maybe two years on cable and loved it. But uh, yeah, believe it or not, number one on my list is Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, a movie that like, there's just something about it. Because, you know, we, like we go back and forth a lot, Trev, with like horror and stuff. And um, and I always say, you know, even though I do prefer R-rated horror films, like I don't like watered down movies from getting from R to PG-13. But I always say like, I have no problem if you want to make like a PG rated horror film. And I feel like this is like almost like the perfect example of like a movie with a tame rating, but this movie has always creeped me out and it's obviously not the things that happen in it. Um, I don't know really how to describe it, but it's just other than basically a, a sinister carnival comes to a small town and I uh, can't remember Trev, does it take place in the 1920s or 1930s? Ooh, I don't know the yeah. exact decade, but it's yeah. like around that era. And it's like the eyes of this little boy and seeing the thing and like basically uh, the 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 guy who runs the carnival is kind of like this almost satanic fa- uh, figure played by Jonathan Price. And he basically 
he gives people their wishes, like what they want, what their true heart desires. Uh, you know, like for example, there was like a guy in the town who was like a football hero when he was young and he had an accident he lost his leg. So he gets his leg back and all that. And then like, there's like, you know, other people get turned back into kids. Like there's all kinds of strange shit in it. But like this movie is just more eerie and creepy. And like, I really wish Trev in like this day and age of, I feel like they're trying to make movies more for a general audience again. I really wish there would be like more horror around like this because this movie mm-hmm. creeped me out as a kid and even just rewatching it recently in the last couple of years. And like, again, like just how we were talking about existence being held back. Like, I feel like this one, if it would have got a good yeah. Blu-ray and there is a Blu-ray finally available, it just came available like within the last year or two, but you have to get it from Disney movie club. So that's obviously a barrier of entry. Not, I don't even think a lot of people even know that, that a release exists. But, uh, I didn't. So you just said that. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, it's uh, I don't know, just just an amazing film and just very classical feel. Even as a kid, like you know, watch it in the theater in the early '80s, like I felt like I was watching very classic and timeless. But I just love this movie a lot. I mean, Pam Greer's in it. Uh, like I think yeah. it's probably the height of Pam Greer's beauty, if that's even possible. But it's just like, so it's just such a great cast. Jason Robards is amazing, and it is the boy's father. And it's just I don't know. It just like there's just like su- such a time. Um, you know how we talk? You're talking about Liquid Sky, Trev. Um, like people are like, you know, I can't believe like movies this whatever would get made then this weird and like I feel like this movie even though it is based on a classic, uh, I believe it's Ray Bradbury's story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like I mean, obviously not Ray Bra- Ray Bradbury was very hot at the time in the eighties, but um, I mean he always was, but you know especially that time period. But uh, yeah, like I just don't think. I mean, first of all, Disney, of course not, but I don't think any major studio would make a movie this weird because like you can't really sell this movie as like. It's not really the type of movie, like a horror movie, where, um, you know, the, you're going to take your date and she's going to scream and grab your arm and all that kind of shit. And it's not, and you can't pitch it as there's like nothing really feel good about this movie. It's just a movie that's like unsettling, eerie, and creepy. But yeah, I, I truly love it. And I can't, honestly, like just thinking about it, you know, making this list, I can't wait to watch it again. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to put this as your number one. I mean, this is one that floated around my list, and ultimately it was the the thing that kept it off was the unavailability of it forever yeah. because it's a movie I remember really loving and really being creeped out by as a kid, and then I haven't seen it in probably in like over two decades just yeah. because I haven't had a way to. And, I you know, I remember like this is one where it, every, like, it constantly bothers me that it's not available on Disney+. Plus. It's like yeah. they just don't want to acknowledge this movie for some reason. And it's honestly a movie where I'm more, at this point, I'm more familiar with the novel by Ray Bradbury than the movie because I've yeah. read the novel uh, a few times. Yeah. And it's a great it's a great book, and this is a really good adaptation, but I've just, I haven't been able to go back and revisit the movie the same way, I, uh, as much as I wish I could. So I'm glad you put it number one because it, it deserves to be shouted out. Um, I just, I felt like I couldn't put it there because I honestly <laughs> yeah, haven't been able to revisit it. It's not as fresh it. in your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, cool, that's really cool. And like, yeah, people should definitely check out the book and if they can, check out the movie, however, yeah. however you need to. Uh, not, you know, not saying anything untoward there, but do what you do what you need to to see this movie. <laughs> don't yeah, let Disney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- d- don't let Disney. Which, uh, even when Disney Plus came out, I don't even know if they still have it, but they had that thing where you could request them to add shit. I requested this movie like three times. That was before the Blu-ray came out, and it was just like, yeah, like I have a copy of the Blu-ray, uh, thankfully. But uh, it's like, unfortunately, it's, it's still packed away somewhere. I gotta find it. But when, when I do find it, I will be watching it again, very, you know, right away. 
right. Well, my number one, and boy, looking at my top five, I didn't realize my top five is so genre heavy. And it's that really, uh, this was, this was a more interesting year than just genre movies. But again, yeah. we're talking about like what our sensibilities are. Um, my number one is another one where I don't know if we'd done this list a few years ago, I would have had the same number one, but, and I've always liked this film, but it's a movie I just come to appreciate even more and more over the years. And, and recently when doing like franchise revisits and, uh, you know, kind of just going back and seeing, uh, how shocking it is this movie exists and how shocking it is that it turned out as well as it did. And that's Psycho 2. Uh, Psycho 2, the sequel that probably never should have happened, that yeah. somehow, you know, like defied all odds to be uh, a amazing sequel. Uh, you know, like obviously there were, the, we kind of know the story. I think Universal always would have been down for a Psycho sequel, but really they kind of had to wait for Alfred Hitchcock to kick the bucket and yes. to try and even put their toes into that water. Thankfully, they got Richard Franklin, who was like, you know, a, a, a Hitchcock acolyte and probably one of the best at, you know, um, emulating the Hitchcock style written by the great Tom Holland. And then, of course, thankfully, you do get back Anthony Perkins and Vera Miles reprising their roles from the original. Um, Anthony Perkins, you know, I think his performance in the first Psycho is just one of the all time great cinematic performances. Yeah. But I really, what I really dig about the Psycho sequels, and I like all of them. This is the best one, I think. But I, I think it's really fun to see him come back to the role. I know he had like this kind of um, complicated relationship with the character, where he he always wanted to come back and do the sequels when they made them. But obviously, he's also worried about being typecast, and that did happen to him. Right. But I but I love the sequels getting to see him play an older Norman, yeah. and like you know, and getting to really like do a more range with the character and and play like in this one the even more sympathetic version. Because for those who don't know what the sequel is, is this sequel kind of takes place in the time of the movie. So it's, it's you know, many years after the events of Psycho. So long, in fact, that they are now releasing Norman Bates from the asylum. Yeah. And he's being, oddly enough, I don't know that the logic of this tracks. So you just have to swallow this. He's allowed to go back to the, his original home, which I <laughs> yes. don't know would be the case. Uh, but they set him up with, like, a job and a little diner. And he gets to go back to his original home. Uh, the motel has been taken over by uh, Dennis Franz, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah. Um, but obviously it isn't too long before Norman is back in charge because of events there. Um, and you really, the whole, the, the idea of this movie, I'm not going to go too far into the story because if those who haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin the twists and turns because just as with the original, there are some interesting twists, but Vera Miles playing the, the, her character, the sister of Jenna Lee's character from the first film, she is very upset that they have released Norman. And at the beginning you see her kind of, you know, raising a stink about it. And she really wants to try and, you know, she doesn't believe that he is rehabilitated. At the same time, uh, Meg Tilly, and again, I quite like Meg Tilly, and she, you know, didn't have the career I thought she would have, judged by some of her earlier roles. It's really cool to see her come back recently and be in the Chucky show uh, mm -hmm. with her sister Jennifer Tilly. But she plays a young woman who ends up coming to the motel. Um, she ends up staying in the exact same room Jana Lee's character stayed in the first one. And basically, the, the dramatic thrust of this movie is that. You're the whole movie you spend worried about Norman because you're like rooting for him to be better and to be, you know, um, free of the control of his mother. But you're constantly worried that he's going to revert back to what he was in the first movie and go after Meg Tilly's character. And then, right. like I said, there's some more additional twists and turns about who people are and what's going on. And it just builds to a great climax. But yeah, it's like, I think everybody rightfully was concerned about the idea of a psycho sequel you know, yeah. coming so many years later and coming, you know, not from Hitchcock, but man, they, I think they, they nailed it out of the park with this one. And I put this right up there with psycho. I think again, it's, it's a sequel that 
entirely complements the first movie and it's just so much better than it had any right to be. The next one is kind of a more ugly, silly slasher. I dig it. Yeah. Part four is a made for TV prequel movie. Feels a little unnecessary, but I still like it. But this is real really the star of the show and the sequels. Yeah, for sure. And it's like it's kind of funny too, because like I feel this film now, you know, amongst horror fans, like it feels like it definitely has a pedigree because it's like A, it's it's kinda like whoever thought, especially that much later. Like I think this came what was it, Trev, like 18 or 19 years after the original? Somewhere around there. Yeah. And it was like, you would, like, this just seemed like the worst idea ever. And, like, I've always been curious about that. And I've read a few things, but, like, I never really got quite a sense, like, if there was or how big there was, like, a backlash to the idea of, of doing a Psycho sequel. Because it's like, I remember when I was a kid, even in the, the wake of, like, Psycho 2 and Psycho 3 and stuff, I remember it feeling like, which I guess the '80s kind of was the, the 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 decade of sequels and just running shit in the ground, so maybe people just accepted it. But I always felt like, like even then, even after the sequels, you know, kind of ran their course and stuff. Like during the '80s and even during the '90s, leading up to the Gus Van Sant like weird remake, like Psycho, the original film was like put on such a pedestal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The, like I can't remember people. And because uh, th- didn't the genesis of it, I might maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but didn't the genesis of Psycho 2 come from originally a book that was a sequel to the original book? That well, Robert Psycho... Block, Robert Block, who yeah. wrote the original, did write a sequel. Yeah, but that's right. they did. They ended up like I think that kind of got the ball rolling, but they ended up Tom the screenplay Tom Holland wrote is not an adaptation of that. Book. Right. They ended up deciding to do their own thing. Yeah. Right. So so since this, so this is, I, I know you don't want to give away uh, twists and turns and stuff like that, but um. You know, and obviously, too, because it really, the whole, not the whole movie, but it, it pretty much the movie rides on a, you know, hinges on a, a revelation that comes late. But is there any part of you as a fan? Because, like, you know, I own all these on Blu-ray as well. I, I like them, too. I watched Psycho 2 a lot uh, as as a kid on, on cable. But is there any part of you that with this film feels like almost like, because um, there is kind of, I guess, a retcon of something major in the storyline in relation to the original film. Does that bother you that there's that level of retconning going on? It doesn't really. I think, you know, it. well, first of all, they retcon the retcon later on, too. Right, right. Because right, yeah. so, uh, I think they realize, like, whoops, you know. But even in the moment, it doesn't because what it builds to is so darkly funny and, like, so appropriate in terms of how this movie ends that, like, I... It's it's not the best part of the movie that retcon, but yeah. I don't think it it doesn't change what you know about the character in a in a in a significant way because he still always believed what he believed, right? Right. And I and I, like I said, I do I don't want to dismiss like how impressive what this movie does is in general because you're you're making a sequel not only like twenty over twenty years later, you know you're doing it without the original director who by this point had been canonized as like the best director of all time, right? Yeah, and you're yeah. moving forward with with a kind of a more unknown director. Um, but you're also taking the character that we now pop, like pop culture just understood was the villain of the first film and asking the audience to accept him as the sympathetic hero of the movie. And that's pretty impressive. And again, that really falls on what a great performance Anthony Perkins gives in this. Like yeah. he, he's so good and you really are always rooting for him. You know, that the first movie does that. One of the brilliant things about the first movie is the way, even when it, when it's revealed, you know, before you know exactly what's going on with Norman, there's that great moment. People have cited it often when he's trying to get rid of the car and he puts the car into the swamp and it doesn't sink and you're actually worried for him, yeah, <laughs> even though yeah, yeah. you're even though you're watching him try to get away with like a, you know a, a murder. Oh, yeah. But 
but that's just, you know, like there's elements that in the first movie and then to turn around and say, well, the, the sequel is going to be all that. The entire sequel is going to be you like Norman now and you don't want bad things to happen to Norman. That's that's pretty impressive. I can't think of too many other horror franchises that even attempted that. So, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's there's so many reasons this movie shouldn't work and it kind of overcomes them all. And I think that's what's super impressive about it. And that's why it's become my favorite movie of that year. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny, too, exactly what you're what you're talking about, Trev, as far as the sympathy for the Norman Bates character is I remember like me and my buddies because you know obviously we would you know any any sort of not just horror but really just any movie that was big at the time you know one of us or you know somebody would record it off HBO and then you'd have that tape and you sit down and watch it and like we we're all obsessed with tracking the the storylines and the villains and whatever and I remember as a kid like really you know obviously growing up more in the wake of psycho two and three than even psycho which you know was was always a classic movie we always knew it was considered like the best horror movie of all time but it, i don't really remember psycho at least when i was a kid playing on tv like all the no. time but i remember yeah. two and three always being on and i remember me and like my little buddies at the time like we were totally on norman's side and like to us uh mother was the um Again, this is because you're a kid. You don't quite really grasp the, the true storyline. But, like, to us, Mother was, like, the evil spirit that was always mm-hmm. doing these things. That Like, like she was, like, a ghost to us. Like, we didn't even really, like, even within watching the whole context of the movie, it was always Mother. And it was, like, you're always feeling bad for Norman. So, yeah. But uh, I don't know. Like, it, it is weird. And I think something, too, that Psycho 2 really benefits from is it's it's kind of, like, cool in a way. Uh, you know, because like, you know, whatever, 20 years have passed, obviously Anthony Perkins, like he's very young in the first one. He's 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 an adult, a true, you know, clearly an adult man. But he, I mean, he still pretty much looks like Norman Bates. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think well, and also he gets to play him still young. Right. Because yeah. his entire childhood and well, not childhood, but his like young man life was stolen from him. Right. right, right yeah. He spent 20 years living in, a, in an institution. Yeah. But there's just something about it that's really interesting with, with, you know, really with Psycho 2, but also 3 as well. But it's interesting to see something like so classic kind of reinterpreted and like re and like brought back into a time when like the actually the filmmaking style, obviously, I mean, obviously nobody can, you know, replicate Alfred Hitchcock, but like the filmmaking style from the early 80s to, you know, like, like, I don't think it would have you know, at least for people our age, obviously that grew up with, with these movies. Like, I don't think it would hold as much weight if like they would have made it in like 1976 or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I think really mm-hmm. just like fitting into that mold of like an early eighties horror movie too. Like, I don't know. There's just something really classic and nostalgic, you know, for our generation with that. But Yeah. It has a classic feel. I mean, like I said, part three, which I do dig, but part yeah. three is like so much sleazier, right? Yeah. Enough, the one directed by Norman Bates. I always think of the scene with Jeff Fahey and like the, the hooker in his hotel room and just yeah. like like how like over the top sleazy that is but part two i think it like it feels like an 80s film but it also feels like of a piece with hitchcock's movie right. and that's again that's that's thanks to richard franklin who was a student of, of hitchcock i mean you look at something like road games another movie i really like and that that does feel hitchcockian right he was yeah. one of the better him and you know de palma did it as like just trying to like do pastiche but franklin yeah. did it as being like a real student of him exactly i agree and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's just funny, because um, I remember when Psycho 4, just one note about Psycho 4, when that came out, and it actually ended up coming out, just debuting on Showtime, like, I can't mm-hmm. remember. I remember watching it that night it debuted. Yeah, like, I remember I remember there was, like, you wouldn't think, like, you know, now in, in retrospect, you're like, oh, like, it, you know, Psycho 4 was, like, a made-for-TV, like, you know, de- or debuted on t- TV movie. 
So like the, like clearly now you look back and like oh the the franchise was in its last grasp and it was you know knocked down a page. But I remember at the time people like the just the whole concept of a prequel really hadn't. It really was a novel idea, and I remember people being excited about that movie because it was a prequel. Like I found people find it, and it's really not a true prequel because it's like you have the modern day segments too, also with Anthony Perkins still reprising the role. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of interesting. That's the nostalgic thing to look back on too, is because um, I always like to do the thing when I do a series rewatch. If they ever did a prequel, they don't. I actually do like to watch them in chronological order. But you actually can't really do that with Psycho Four because it also wraps up like the modern day storyline too, as well. Yeah. But, but yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think we had a an interesting. Uh, we really didn't have much crossover either, besides I think Christine. So, oh, well, and Return, Return of Jedi. Yeah, Christmas Story. Return. But no, I mean, no three. crossover in the top five, which is no. Cool. Yeah, because usually, usually we have like at least two big ones crossover. Yeah. But, uh, and I mean, there are certain movies that still like you know that's the thing about eighty three is like neither of us mentioned Scarface, neither yeah. of us mentioned Trading Places, Flashdance. I like these movies. You know, oh, I love just... Flash. I love all those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and again, if you would if I would have made this list in college, Scarface probably would have been number one. That original DVD release, like holy shit, yeah. like you, you wouldn't believe how many Scarface bootleg T-shirts I had in college. Trev is ridiculous. I know. But, I think you and I were both probably we were probably both into Scarface before it oddly got overtaken by hip hop culture. Yes, yes. Be, before everybody held the DVD up on MTV cribs. <laughs> but yeah, so to close it out, we like to do an, like one last little thing is. You know, because we're we're looking at the list of films, you know, of what came out that year and what goes on and off it and whatnot, and uh, what we would like to see. Um, so yeah, so my list, I have three films here that I'd like to see real quick. They're they're really lame, and here's why: not that the films are lame, but I'm lame because two of these films I have copies of, and I just haven't watched yet. So. Uh, a movie that was like big when I was a kid, but obviously wasn't for my age group. But I've always wanted to see it, and I even bought the Blu-ray a few months ago. But uh, I've never seen The Big Chill, Trev. Oh wow! Yeah, I've never seen that. Number two on my list again. I'm lame. I think I've had a, this on Blu-ray for two years now, and just like whenever I like I because a lot of times like I'll just pick a random movie from my collection. Like one night I'll just walk in the room and be like what do i want to watch and i always mean to grab this and watch it on those nights but i just haven't got around to it and now you kind of push me over the edge but liquid sky trev i have a mm-hmm. copy of liquid sky i never watch it the last one the third one i've actually well i'm you know it's on my to see list but like i've never seen this movie i never at least in a long time i've never come across it on cable or streaming or just anything but i just kind of remember this movie the trailers from when I was a kid and I've always wanted to watch it, but, uh, Max Dugan returns. <laughs> it's like, it's one of those things. I just know the title of being a kid. Right. Right. I, I don't think I'm not sure I've ever seen it either, but yeah, like I believe it's Jason Robards, Matthew Broderick. Mm-hmm. And I was like, like I always knew Robards was in, but I was just like, what Matthew Broderick's in? I was like, I need to see this, but it, like, I really don't even know like what type of film it is. Cause sometimes trailers could be misleading back then, but it kind of just seemed like a goofy, kind of like drama comedy type movie but yeah, yeah so that's my to see list cool i i have three as well um the first one is uh the osterman weekend which Ooh. is the, the last movie directed by sam peckinpah it's based mm-hmm. on like a robert lundlum novel so i know it's like you know i'm looking at the post right now and i don't know the hook is it says what would you do if a total stranger proved to you that your three closest friends were soviet agents wow i mean that sounds good good enough to me and i you know i dig like the born movies from the ludlum stuff and I don't know. I know this movie was kind of like 
wasn't super critically acclaimed when it came out from what I saw, but I mean, listen to this cast. Rutger Howard, John Hurt, Burt Lancaster, Dennis Hopper, Meg Foster, Chris Sarandon, and Craig T. Nelson. Like, yeah, I should see this. And just, you know, liking most of Peckinpah's other stuff I've seen. So that's one I want to get around to. Um, the other one is another movie I believe Vinegar Syndrome has put out, or at least like one of their like ancillary labels has. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's like an exploitation action movie called Walking the Edge, oh, yeah. which has Robert Forster, uh, Joe Spinell, and Nancy Kwan. And I guess it's like Nancy Kwan is like a housewife whose family is killed by um, a, a criminal gang led by Joe Spinell. And she decides to become like the Avenger, you know, and I love, you know, kind of revenge movies of that right. ilk. And and like uh, Robert Forster is just like a, a taxi driver that ends up helping her. And so I, what do, two things I love revenge movies and like exploitation movies starring Robert Forster. So yeah, oh, of I, should, course. I should get around to seeing that. And then my last one is like the real shame movie on my list. I can't believe I've never seen this because earlier I mentioned how much I love David Bowie and how I think David Bowie's like acting career never got the uh, the accolades and the attention it should have. And then to that end, I'm guilty of that myself because I've never seen Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Oh, Trev, you got to see it. I, I actually I did know, a Hillbilly it, DVD review review of it on Christmas yeah. one year. Yeah. Yeah, and I've never seen it. I know there's like a good Criterion release of yeah. it, and like, and I, it's everything about that movie just seems very interesting and fascinating to me. Um, I've purposely like not looked too deep into the story because I still want to be surprised by it. But I know it yeah. has like a young Takeshi Kitano in it as well. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, just uh, I know it was like. Film festival sensation, and I've always heard it's like arguably maybe Bowie's best performance in a movie. So yeah, it's really good. I mean, like not to swell too much, but like yeah, it 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 has to do with the World War Two POW camp, and Mm -hmm. you know Bowie's the British, and it just it's just one of those interesting movies that's like it's just really. I mean, obviously it's a whole character piece, and it's about the differences between you know the the prisoners and their the, the Japanese are holding their captive and uh I'm blanking on the guy's name now, but the the guy who plays the Japanese lead in it, he was actually a musician as well, I believe. He's like amazingly good in it too. And I think unfortunately he just passed away a couple years ago. But yeah, Merry Christmas and it it was it wasn't even a blind buy. Like I don't know why. Like uh it was just one of those films uh, my my dad used to you know order a lot of films and have them sent to me and that was one of those ones and like I you know I got it and had it for a few months and then it was getting towards Christmas time and I popped it in and I was like wow like ha- like because I don't even remember that movie at all being released when I was I mean obviously I was like young when it came out but like I don't remember I don't remember that movie coming out I don't ever remember seeing it on cable and I don't remember anybody really raving about it at, at any point and it's like so good it really it really deserves to be seen by you know hopefully everybody but you know so yeah i think we um uh another another honorable mention real quick um was i was kind of conflicted because it was a limited release movie limited release but it got more wide release early 84 for award season but uh i really struggled like i wasn't sure like should i put it on should i but like i'm a big fan of star 80 trev Mm. Eric Roberts, man, amazing performance. I watched it on cable maybe six months ago again. Yeah. Uh, it almost feels like a TV movie in a weird way, and I guess that maybe knocks it down a notch. But, like, Eric, you know, like, I hate to watch any movie that kind of, like, romanticizes any sort of murderous per- person. Yeah, so that's, that's the one about the Playboy playmate yeah. that was murdered, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, it's uh, a Bob Fosse movie, isn't it? Yeah, Bob Fosse. And it was, like, basically, for people who don't know, it's just, like, uh, this Playboy. Uh, it might have been the centerfold of the year. 
and uh, I think Barbie Benton was her name. And it's like this guy, it's basically the classic story of like small town guy finds this pretty girl working in like a Dairy Queen. And like, it's just fascinating, like the, the links they went through, Trev, because like they even shot it in the actual Dairy Queen where like they really met and stuff. And like, he's kind of like a hustler guy. Like he's, I mean, he's not exactly a pimp, but he's kind of in that realm of being a criminal guy. And he kind of uses this woman as a meal ticket and she works her way up from model to playboy to then eventually acting in movies and she made a few movies and uh the only thing they really change is in real life she she left him for peter bogdanovich and um and uh in the movie like they don't have somebody play peter bogdanovich they just change the name they make it like some fake british director but other than that it's amazing recreation of like a true crime story and they even shot it shockingly in the house where he ended up killing her and stuff but like yeah it's it's, it's really good and just uh because you mentioned the uh the one film about the soviet thing uh i watched a soviet film recently again bucket list movie of like always wanting to watch this because i just knew the title but had no idea what the movie was i watched gorky park with uh william hurt as a, a russian cop uh uncovering like a uh, a, a murder mystery in, in Russia. It's a very underrated film. Uh, I think it's one of those movies, the only thing you can kind of knock it for is it's just one of those weird movies where it takes place in Russia and all the Russians speak English with an accent. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. But no, it's a really, really good movie. But uh, Do they at least do the, uh, the Hunt for October thing where they start speaking Russian and it switches over to English? You know, I don't think they did. Now you, took, you know what's cool is I, I you, you haven't seen it, but James Cameron actually does that in Avatar 2. Really? And I was like, oh, I love that because like, that's such a great conceit. Like, yeah. I always love that moment in Hunt for October, and I think it's, like, such a simple, you know, creative way to get to get past that. You know, I saw Hunt for Red October in the theater, like, when it came out, but I didn't see it for years, like, later. So, like, I kind of forgot the Hunt for Red October, excuse me, Hunt for Red October kind of invented that. But I remember yeah. watching that Jude Law movie, Enemy at the Gates, in the theater, like, in the late 90s or early 2000s, whenever it came out. And they did that. They stole that conceit exactly from the Hunt for Act. I remember sitting in the theater, being like my mind blown, and being like, "What?" Like, <laughs> yeah. Another movie that actually does it in a pretty cool way is the Thirteenth Warrior with Antonio Banderas. Oh yeah. Which, which again, I, I know that movie. You know, aka Eaters of the Dead is what it's supposed to be called. Mm-hmm. I know that movie got chopped to shit by Disney. But even even with that, I still like the Thirteenth Warrior version. That's another movie, man. No good release. Like I know, I, yeah, I like that movie too. But I, yeah. yeah, I keep watching out for digital to see if it ever goes on a five dollar sale, and it never does. And it's like, well, sorry. no good release. And also, like I remember at the time, because then we didn't do very well in general. No, and I always feel like they they somewhat miscalculated by it was never made clear. I think to the public that that is actually about Beowulf. Right. <laughs> like that's like it's supposed to be like the story behind Beowulf, and I think like. Not to say like Beowulf is like some big pop culture sensation, but everyone reads Beowulf in school. Everyone's familiar with it. They might have done better to make that more clear. Yeah. Um, just because you brought them up, I know we're wrapping up, but I'm going to yeah. give a quick shout out to uh, Eric Roberts because you mentioned yeah. him. And dude, uh, going back to the beginning episode, when we did our top 10 lists. Um, so I'm sitting, I'm watching Damien Chazelle's Babylon and Eric yeah. Roberts pops up in a pretty significant featured wow. part. And that led to me talking to our buddy Bird about is Eric Roberts the only remaining person who we would like to say he really he walks in both worlds because he still gets cast in like legit movies from like filmmakers like Nolan and Damien Chazelle. But then he spends most of the year making like asylum movies and these total like cheapo movies. And I feel like he really is one of the uh, that I can think of, like one of the last remaining guys who the fact that he does all those cheapo movies has apparently not affected 
his like overall Hollywood career at all. Not that it like he's never the star in anything. No. But still, I like once you go that route, you usually don't get welcome back. Like right. Tom Sizemore today is only doing like those kind of right, movies, right. right? Like it's pretty cool to see people still giving Eric Robert feature roles in in bigger Hollywood productions too. Yeah, like you know, like I re- I think really what that harkens back to too is just like the the people that are directors now. Like, they remember Eric Roberts and stuff like the Pope of Greenwich Village and mm-hmm. Star 80 and just, you know, all his early, you know, Runaway Train even. Like, I, I think I think it's, like, one of those weird things where it's, like, he'll come in and he'll just, like, read the shit off the whatever for your $100,000 movie if you pay him. But it's, like, like he's, he, like, he's still got chops. I feel like mm-hmm. Anthony Michael Hall is a little bit in the same way, but just not to the same degree. It's like Anthony Michael Hall will still occasionally pop up in a real movie. Um, but yeah, like, but I know, you know, for sure, Eric Roberts for sure is the true daywalker. Like, actually, just last week, I watched a movie on cable. Um, it was, it was kind of like one of those mid budget made for cable movies of the, like, the, I can't remember the exact year, but the very early 90s, I think. It was called Love Cheat Steal. And it had my one-two punch of not only Eric Roberts but our girl uh, Madchen Amick was in it. Oh yeah. And then John Lithgow, and it was like a t- you know John Lithgow is married to to Madchen, and it's just like uh, you know he's like this boring banker guy with this hot young wife, and nobody can believe it. And Eric Roberts is like you know this guy that breaks out of jail, and it turns out you know she was his girlfriend, you know, but she she turned him into the cops and stuff, and then she ran away and started a new life, married this rich banker guy. And of course, he shows up, sleezing his way in, pretending to be her, um, her brother. And but obviously, you know, he's still trying to be lovers with her and all this shit. And I mean, it was just totally like early '90s, like uh, uh, you know, basically Showtime Cinemax. I think it did premiere on Showtime, kind of trash. But just that cast being in it rose it. Uh, but you know, even though the script was very pedestrian and predictable, it was just such a joy to watch. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, to, to watch all those people, you know, and, and, you know, not, I mean, not that they're like not still in their prime of acting talent, but you know, to watch them younger and doing other things. So it's like, I kind of miss like, you know, it's really weird, Trev. Cause like, I think, you, I think you agree to some extent is like, we have a lot of stuff being made for the streaming market and it's just like streaming to quote the great uh, the late great bob chapek uh, streaming is a hungry beast and we never imagined how hungry it really was and it's like i feel like we are getting all that quote-unquote product thrown into the pipeline of streaming but it, like and like a lot of that shit is supposed to be your comfort food movies but i don't think they're really as good as the made for cable movies that we no, had in the early 90s not. you know no, even the the made for cable and the made for video market of yeah. like the '90s, like that's it's that's all so much better than the straight to streaming stuff yeah. we're getting. Yeah, like 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 the made for cable shit back then and made for video, like you would kind of get like a worn out like plot that you had seen 20 30 times before but you would at least get it with some good production values some good actors like there's a lot of people that like were stars in the 80s that were relegated to direct video in the 90s and like if i can check their movies out on a cable or something or streaming like i always do it and then like i generally never feel cheated watching those movies you know what i mean well and i think the proof of that too is there was even there was straight to video stars right yeah. and like there's no streaming stars you know like like i know it's a kind of a different level but like you know a don the dragon wilson or right. a cynthia rothrock they were like marketable stars for just that that version of the market just the video right. market but there's nobody that's like oh he's the streaming guy you right. know that's not yeah. a thing that exists yeah i think the closest thing to the streaming guy you have now which no it's not the same thing but he's been relegated to the streaming guy i think it's chris pratt <laughs> 
<laughs> they're like, oh, you won't even believe Amazon, man. They're raking in all the viewers with the Tomorrow War and the Kill List or whatever. It's just like, okay. Because like, like all these guys are like streaming guys now, right? Yeah, like this yeah. year we have streaming movies coming out starring like Tom Hardy and you know yeah. Chris Evans. It's like right. you, you can. That's I mean, all look not to reiterate, not to like relitigate this discussion, but no. it is true that there are no more movie stars. Like yeah, we just yeah. have to face it. Yeah. Yeah, like I can't remember what I think it was. You guys were talking about that recently on an episode, and like. Like, I still get this thing of, like, I mean, not just from the box office, because I know, like, as film fans, you know, generally, you and I, we really don't care about box office, other than, like, if a good movie bombs, we want it to, you know, whatever. But, like, like yeah, like, there's a lot of people that are, like, I would never, like, I hear people say, well, not here, but I see, I'll put this way, I see people type this very proudly, Trev, is I would never watch a movie just because of who's in it. And I'm kind of, like, you know how many really great movies, like, Little Hidden Gems, I discovered just like not just like recently but just like over my entire life just walking through the video store being like oh I didn't know this guy like I never heard of this movie but it's got an actor I like and ran in it and giving it a chance like I feel like actors should still be the gateway into like getting you to take the jump and give a movie a chance but yeah i think that's true i mean i think when people say i wouldn't watch a movie just because who's in it that just proves that we've done a disservice by letting that kind of like personality driven and like you know iconic performer thing go away yeah. because there's no shame in like you know being like i like i like schwarzenegger movies you know right. or i like jesus christ you don't even have to go like that far i like elliot gould movies you know right. like yeah. to take two different eras there's no shame in that to just be intrigued by a star because you trust their sensibilities or think they're always going to do something kind of right. interesting but that's the thing is like these actors today the modern ones they're not interesting right no. i can see why if you if you were raised on chris pratt then yeah, I get it saying I wouldn't see a movie just because Chris Pratt is in it because yeah, because you know what you're gonna get. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 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 I do it all the time on these um kind of Kino Lorber sales with these five dollar Blu-rays. Like I'll be like, this is a movie from the '80s or '90s. I've never heard of it. Just reading the plot synopsis. Sometimes I'll look up the trailer on YouTube, but it, it will have an actor in it I like, and uh, you know I'll discover it. Yeah, you know, like perfect example like. A uh, movie like Crackers with Donald Sutherland and a young Sean Penn in it. It's just this goofy movie. I want to say it's like Louis Mal made it. It's just this goofy movie about these guys trying on a long weekend or whatever, like trying to break into their friend's business and rob him while he's out of town. And it's just like, I never would have watched that movie if it wasn't for the cast. But it's just yeah. like, you watch it and it's like, this is delightful. This is awesome. I, I think I watched it on HBO of all places a few years ago. And then I saw a Blu-ray of it. I was like, oh, I'm getting this movie. Like, it's just weird, like, how much, it, like, like it's just, you know, doing this list again, too, Trev, just one last thought before we wrap it up, is, like, you really, truly forget how many films come out in any calendar year, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And yeah, just, and I think, yeah. and I think that's even, like, that's only going to become tougher for us as we go along, because I think yeah. that list just grows every year, because yeah, right. I think the, the film market, once home video and everything was introduced, that just blew up even more, you know? Yeah. And it's really sad, too, like, uh, one last thing, not to end on a negative thing, but pour some uh, liquor out for our dead homies is uh, there's a lot of theater chains struggling now. And uh, I think in 2022, to wrap up 2022 talk, is um, I think they said, Trev, there's like 40 or 44 percent less theatrical releases sent to theaters. And that's like, I mean, the box office is just kind of sluggish anyway right now, but like that kind of didn't help you know the yeah. problem but like still like there's just movies pouring out weekly on streaming and then like i don't know like like i know regal uh cinemas is going through a big bankruptcy thing and they're closing dozens of theaters like oh like pretty much monthly but almost weekly at this point the 
the bankruptcy uh, process, whatever they do, is uh, speeding up and theaters close. A lot of people losing their local theaters. A few groups I'm on on Facebook, I see it, and people post some photos and local news stories about them losing their their theaters. And it's a uh, it's a sad time. Like in in you know what you saying, like uh, there being a little more hope. with some good movies coming out in 2023. Um, yeah, like I hope we can reverse this trend. And you know. Yeah, and here's and here's something we can get back to like you know, every movies of all ilk getting released in the theaters because right. that really is, that is important. I mean, we can't discount that. Like no. there is just a cultural cachet that exists with a, being a theatrical release versus a streaming, you know, yeah. 30 years from now, there's not going to be a podcast doing a best movies of 2022 episode. And they're like, uh, I love the gray man. You yeah, know, right, that's, yeah. that's not going to happen. We're always going to mm-hmm. like concentrate on the movies that got theatrical release. Yeah. And like, I've seen a lot of people beating that drum on YouTube and like, I get it. It's hard for the studios to ju- justify spending 10, 15, 20 million to market every single movie they got. But it's like, at the same time, it's like everything becomes disposable if it only just gets dumped on the streaming with very little fanfare. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't have any other thoughts other than just to thank you for coming back and doing this. And it, it, it's a little bit my fault. I kept putting this episode off and prioritizing other episodes for us to do. But we've been meaning to do this for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad yeah. we did it. And it was a lot of fun. And, like, I kind of already can't wait to, uh, you know, jump into the next year. Because I've always kind of theorized, and I want to do an episode of it on this podcast but i always kind of theorize that like at least for people of our ilk and our generation 1984 might have been the best year in film for us but, yeah that's gonna be a brain buster sitting yeah. down and trying to come up with that list so <laughs> yeah. Be interesting to see. yeah yeah so it's gonna be amazing so i mean trev obviously thank you mm-hmm. and i think we talk about it all the time uh on here when you come on we talk about failure to franchise which is not only my favorite uh podcast but uh you know the really the only one i have time to listen to and i always make sure i make time but for our listeners i just want to throw something you did a few months ago uh i mean this is early 2023 but fall 2022 you guys did a really cool kind of like mini run of episodes called fall back to the 80s yeah we looked at all uh fail franchise starts from the 80s including like remo williams buckaroo bonsai masters of the universe uh geez you just listened to them remind me of some of the other ones i'm missing here what else do we <laughs> yeah. but uh, uh yeah it was it was really great fun because like typically most of the movies we do on the show are from the 90s or 2000s so it was nice to go back right. and say hey this was happening in the 80s too and it was maybe like a slightly different vibe but you guys oh, talked about flash yeah yeah flash gordon shocker mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah lots of fun so obviously i always highly recommend for our listeners to check out failure franchise which i which i will give you guys credit i think you guys still have the best like kind of original podcast idea concept whatever you want to call it and like as far as i know i don't think anybody else like either before or even after you because you know like me trev like i got in the podcasting and then immediately just every like there's a tidal wave of goat copycats everywhere you know what i mean like i started the movie graveyard and next thing you know we had uh the cinema tomb we had mm-hmm. the uh you know the 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 flick uh wasteland we, we had all these things pop up and that's but but yeah. you guys you you get you still you're still running pure you're the only progenitor. the motion picture yeah. mausoleum yeah the motion picture that fucking guy you know what's funny is i actually sent an email i i never talked about this on there before but i actually sent an email to the motion picture mausoleum and i'm like could you at least let me like come on or whatever and like just you know just have me on as a guest just give me my props no nope, they didn't want to hear it trev no no, no response i didn't even get a response so yeah 
So anyway, listeners, obviously we got to thank you. Uh, these these uh, you know looking over our download numbers recently, Trev, these these episodes uh, where we talk about our favorite movies in particular, they usually do pretty well. So I hope that I really do hope this will be a treat to you know kind of mm-hmm. help uh, get the new year off to you know a good start for our listeners. So everybody, I want to thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you back here next time in the movie graveyard. You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com.